from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co-host Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bougay. And, and Corbin, after a, a couple of week absence, is back with us. I'm very excited to, to have him back and, and talk some more hoops. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, I introduced all of you to a, uh, a project that the two of us have been working on called the Best of the Rest Bracket Challenge. Corbin and I both came up with 74 teams that uh, that covered all 30 franchises, teams that uh, were, were really good but were unable to to uh, get to the mountaintop and win an NBA championship. And uh, I, I seeded those teams, ranked them from 1 to 74, and uh, we're, we're going to have two rounds of, of play-in matchups to uh, to get us down to the final 64, the amount of teams that you would you would expect in a typical March Madness style bracket. So uh, for for this week, we're going to bring you part one of the play-in tournament and uh, the the games we've got for you. Uh, game one will be the or matchup one I should say is the 1999 New York Knicks versus the 1981 Houston Rockets. Matchup two is the 2010 Phoenix Suns versus the 1995 Phoenix Suns. Matchup three, the 2003 Charlotte Hornets versus the 2016 Charlotte Hornets. And then uh, matchup four is the 2015 Portland Trailblazers versus the 2013 Denver Nuggets. And the final matchup that we'll talk about in this episode is the 1991 Golden State Warriors versus the 2007 Golden State Warriors. So, uh, just to uh, just to break down kind of how we're going to go about this, we uh, Corbin and I have both sort of selected a team in each matchup to uh, you know be their lawyer, be their defense, and we're going to uh, try to give as good of an argument as possible as to why we think our particular team would win this matchup. Um, we'll, we'll break down, uh, you know, player by player and some of the play styles and, and differences in eras as well as, as we get to them. But, uh, Corbin, you, uh, you excited for this, uh, for this process? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to dig in some... Just give me an excuse to watch old basketball and talk about it, and I will, Garrett, you know this. So, <laughs> I'm just happy to debate this with you. This is the deep pause that I love doing. I, I guess I, I, I didn't get around to discussing... You know, the, these are all going to be played essentially in a in a theoretical seven game series, and uh, the based on the seedings that I did, I gave each team a score based on regular season wins, postseason wins, and point differential. So whichever team scored higher in that metric ended up getting home court advantage. So it's going to be a typical, as you would expect, seven game series like we have today. 
And then for each team that gets their home game, they're also playing in their era with their rule set. Does that does that make sense, Corbin? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you got pregame the teams without three point line. Can't really talk about how Rick Barry would have adjusted well if it wasn't there for him if he had home court. And then same with other teams in the running gun space and pace there. I get it. So uh, let's get into the first matchup. We've got the uh, the 1999 New York Knicks, which uh, Corbin is going to defend, and, and they have home court advantage in this series, and they will be taking on the 1981 Houston Rockets. And, and Corbin, one thing I found uh, interesting about this matchup, and, and one of the reasons I, I thought this would be fun, is uh, this is a battle of two teams that, that both were the eighth seed in the playoffs, <laughs> and uh, went all the way to the NBA Finals and actually won a game or two in the Finals as well. Uh, but, uh, of course, the, the Knicks, they took out the number one seed Miami Heat in that 99 postseason, and the Rockets took out the defending champion Lakers in round one. So what are what are some of the, the things that, uh, that intrigue you about this matchup? I mean, for one, the same both weren't, let's just say... Uh trendsetters in terms of pace they both played among kind of like you know getting the ball around a dominant big um the knicks actually were coming off of that they were a team in transition after being built around ewing for the previous 13 years and so now they're kind of doing more of an egalitarian style of offense but i like the way that you have these these tough teams that had multiple people chipping in around one like traditional center and how they adjusted um as underdogs, really, but somehow winning the matchups and taking advantage of who they played, you know, getting those wins to finally get to the playoffs, to the finals, where, yes, even overmatched, they were still able to at least do something out there, you know, before being dispatched, but still being a team that was there. And, and both, I mean, the 81 Rockets were a lot better offensively than the Knicks were, and the Knicks defensively were a, little, were a lot better in terms of rating, but these they, they outperformed. Um, expectations, won a bunch of really tough series, and then just kind of bowed out. But I, I liked how both had, in my mind, it, with the 81 Knicks, you had a, a center who was still it was almost squarely in his prime in Moses Malone, who I'd forgotten won multiple MVPs, um, whereas the Knicks had a legend in Patrick Ewing. This was really his last season um, of really effective play before fading. Actually, I'd give the 99-2000 season um, consideration as well. Uh, compared to that, you had a 25-year-old Moses Malone in his heyday. And I'm not going to go too much into the Rockets. I know we're about to get into it. But that matchup mentality of overachieving eighth seeds um, instantly had me uh, just intrigued. Yeah, and, and I guess there, there's one more sort of uh, um, rule that we need to, to uh, get out of the way as well before we start breaking this down is the assumption is that these teams get to stay healthy throughout the 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 duration of not only this matchup but the rest of the tournament if they were to advance. So, for for instance, for that 99 Knicks team, Patrick Ewing gets to stay healthy. He doesn't get to be 1993 Patrick Ewing again. But, uh, <laughs> that was my argument. <laughs> but uh, he gets to be the healthiest version of the 1999 Patrick Ewing. And I guess my first question for you about that Knicks team would be, do you think they actually benefited from Ewing's absence and inserting the likes of, of Marcus Camby and, and giving also Kurt Thomas a little bit more run off the bench? So I've been thinking about that question. Um, and I know there's been talk, Bill Simmons made popular the Ewing theory about the team playing better without him. 
Um, for me, it, it's it's weird because on the one hand, yes, they they were a lot faster. Their defense was a lot um, more stingy. They were all over the place. I mean, they had um, through the first twenty games, opponents shot thirty eight percent from the field against them. Um, however, offensively, you know, Ewing was still a guy they went to. I mean. This was the Knicks team that had four players in double figures, uh, average for the season, mind you. This was 50 games, but even throughout. And their leading scorer, um, despite missing 12, was Patrick Ewing. Um, and mind you, Latrusby was injured a little bit. There were some other guys out there. But a lot of the offense was still rolling around him, even though he was tied with Houston and Sprewell in terms of, 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 of shot attempts a night. So I feel like he was still very much um, a part of the offense, and defensively he was still you know, uh, a stout enough defender that he made somewhat of a difference, but the style became a lot, let's just say it was better suited for the Knicks when they started building more around Allen Houston, who was squarely in his prime, and Latrell Sprewell, who was also there as well. Um, but I still think in that 98-99 season, I don't think so just yet, because he was still a guy that they were kind of going to, um, some out of deference as much as his effectiveness. Yeah, it's it's an interesting debate. You know, you mentioned that Knicks team was was not very good offensively. They they actually were 26th in offensive rating. They were they were fourth in defensive rating. So really solid defensive team, and and that's partly why that '99 NBA Finals between the Knicks and Spurs was such a was such a slugfest. Oh my gosh, I tried to watch some of that. I could only watch Game Five when Latrell went off. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that offense, as you stated, a lot of uh, a lot of just feeding the likes of Houston and Sprewell and, and Ewing when he was healthy. Also Larry Johnson, but but a very isolation heavy. Um, and and the Rockets, a, a different team, not as strong defensively. They were 16th in defensive rating. But ninth in offensive rating, they were a, a very solid offensive team, and in large part due to a, a talented front court with, uh, of course, Moses Malone, who was one of the best players in the league at that time. Of, of course, Malone had had a bit of a post game and an unbelievable rebounder, really good at uh, drawing fouls and, and getting to the free throw line. But then they also had a guy in Robert Reed, kind of a do it all forward. That uh, you know had a pretty good mid-range game. Yeah, I liked Robert Reed. Um, in fact, I feel like those Rockets. You know, he was one. I don't want to say he was like a point forward, um, especially. But he had. I mean, what that season, fifteen, uh, seven and four. I guess you could have said for his time, someone who had some nice size. Was I mean, especially in the early eighties, that was you know not really happening as much. But he was a guy who was really uh, enamored with. Um, you said Rudy Tomjanovich out there, Mike Dunleavy, like you said, like like these guys were. I I, I didn't watch enough '81 Rockets, but I feel like you get the semblance of an inside-outside game. You know what I mean with these guys? I know Rudy could definitely shoot it. Um, Mike Dunleavy toward the end of his career caught to the three-point line. Um, like you said, uh, Robert Reed had a, a good mid-range shot. I think Allen is Allen Lavelle. I think is how you pronounce it. But I did some research on him. He was a decent streaky mid-range shooter. So you had some guys out there who could make some shots, and obviously Moses was wreaking havoc in the lane, you know, just finishing around it, and also just being infamous for putbacks and tip-ins, and using his uh, rear to create that space to get back up and get that rebound, you know? Yeah, and, and the Rockets would even occasionally, if, if the shot clock got low, they would just intentionally throw the ball off the backboard to let Malone <laughs> just go and get it. Uh, that's how... Summary their shooting percentages. <laughs> right. 
but you know that Rockets team also had Calvin Murphy off the bench. He he's really interesting to watch. He was five nine, but uh, really good in terms of running off screens. Um, he reminds me a little bit of Allen Iverson in, in some ways, where he's he's got good touch on on. A, he had a little push shot, even he could hit from a, out to even fifteen feet. Um, but a guy that's just constantly running off ball, really quick player, tough to keep in front. Uh, so, so yeah, the, the Rockets had a, a, a pretty pretty uh, good scoring sort of nucleus there. And, and you mentioned Mike Dunleavy. It's funny, you know, we, we uh, a, a few weeks back with Alex West did that, uh, that Lakers-Blazers series from 2000. And the offense that this Rockets team runs kind of reminds me of what, what Mike Dunleavy, the coach, ended up doing for that Portland team where you've got a lot of cross-screening action and then you have some down screens as well to get the likes of Robert Reed and Dunleavy, those jumpers at the top of the key. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was pretty impressed with the Rockets, at least offensively. And uh, the, the biggest issue I noticed, you know, I watched... Uh, I watched game one of the, the 1981 finals between the Rockets and Celtics, which the Rockets uh, blew a, a late lead in that ball game and ended up losing uh, that series in six. But uh, the, the, the big issue I saw with the Rockets team was their, was their transition defense. But uh, I don't know if that's a huge concern against the 1999 New York Knicks. I, I would I would say no, especially if Ewing is healthy. You know, if if he is, then then obviously you're you're kind of keeping it. Uh, let's just say you're um you're, you're kind of waiting for him to get down the court as well. I would have said the advantage there would have been the way they went because with Marcus can be inserted, they were a lot quicker. Latrell's be able to tear on the break. Allen Houston could fill in the lanes. You know, you had a Nixie that could get up and get down. Um, with Ewing uh, on the team or you're starting, um, let's just say they're a lot more selective with it. And their pace was plotting. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy uh, loved a nice, slow pace to kind of take advantage of every bit of the clock they had. <laughs> so that egalitarian offense and the slow pace were staples of the Knicks um, really just throughout the 90s from Pat Riley. And Van Gundy just kind of took it and ran with it. Yeah. And... Or should I say walk with it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um the uh, the other thing that I think um, you know is is beneficial to Houston and maybe why they were a better playoff team the the, the Rockets went forty and forty two in the regular season not not too impressive at all um, but maybe a, a big part of the reason why they were a better postseason team than than regular season team is when the game slows down um, that you know they had a, a veteran point guard in the likes of Tom Henderson who was actually uh, the starting point guard for the seventy eight. Washington Bullets that won the championship, so so he was a veteran guard that had that uh, that title experience, and and he was just a, a, a solid player. He had a three to one assist to turnover ratio in the postseason that year. Um, so you know, again, their their weakness seemed to be that fast break defense or that transition defense, but they were also a team that that didn't really beat themselves in terms of of uh, of giving the ball up and, and allowing the opponents to to get out and, and run. Oh yeah, the team that you know they're they're well well coached. I mean, both had great coaches, but Del Harris back in the day was an underrated coach for a variety of teams in the eighties and nineties, and a long time assistant coach as well. Um, but you're right. I mean, both teams weren't weren't making their own. They weren't making mistakes of their own accord. They were getting into exactly what they wanted. It was deliberate. I don't want to say almost to a fault because it was very successful for what they did. But um, I mean, the Knicks had a lot more of a 
of a change midway because it's kind of weird. Although we're, we're we're banking on the fact that none are injured, the 90, 99 Knicks with that Ewing injury a lot changed, so it's hard to kind of measure the two there. But if we're going from beforehand, uh, especially so. I mean, they were in the bottom tier, at the bottom third of the league in terms of pace up for the Knicks and for the Rockets. You're right, that was their style, that was their deliberate pace, even with. Fast guys like Calvin Murphy, who's probably the only guy on the team who to get a run. <laughs> yeah, the the Knicks are an interesting sort of case study because you know in '99 the most teams uh, like the team they they ended up losing to in the finals played with multiple traditional big men, uh, but uh, the Knicks didn't. You know they played with Larry Johnson a lot at the four, um, and and. You know the the interesting thing about Johnson is obviously he he uh, was was incredibly strong, so he he certainly could handle himself down there. Uh, but but he doesn't provide sort of the floor spacing that you would uh, you would hope to get out of out of going small. Yeah, he was he was a weird one because Larry Johnson had some decent three point shooting years. Um, this wasn't really. I mean, he shot thirty five percent on literally just under two a game. Um, so it's not like that happened for him during the season. He did have a Big one in the playoffs against the Pacers. Um, that was pretty huge. And then in the playoffs, I mean, he shot. Uh, the percentages weren't great. He actually led the Knicks in, in three pointers, both um, well, both attempted and made. He shot a a pretty bad twenty nine percent from out there. Um, but he got up eighty two over twenty nine games, which is saying something, and made twenty four of them. So he was kind of their stretch guy. Um, Allen Houston did have a great three point shooting. Uh, Series, although he was probably the best three-point shooter out there, uh, Latrell Spiro was, was very streaky, um, and he was not hitting the three during that series. I mean, during the season, he was pretty bad. During the playoffs, he shot a cold, cold, cold 16% on 4.25. Like, it was pretty rough for the Knicks. But Larry Johnson is weird because, like, the ideal version of him, he's a guy who's inside, he's a guy who's outside. A lot of his lift had already been messed up from injuries before with Charlotte, so you weren't getting the same player. He actually only played two more seasons before retiring um, because of those injuries. Um, he was still only 29, but he was a guy who, you know, mid-range shot was pretty good. and could kind of stretch it out, but like you said, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't like he was shooting, you know, better parts of 30% from three um, for 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 his uh, NBA career. I mean, he topped out. He was a career 33% three-point shooter. And mind you, his first or second year in New York, he shot 23%. And then 35 and 99 and around 33 for 2000, 2001. Um, but you weren't getting that ideal spacing. Kurt Thomas wasn't doing it for you. Marcus Camby wasn't doing it. So going smaller didn't necessarily um, equate to stretching the floor out. It just meant going smaller and hopefully being faster uh, for the Knicks. Because looking up and down the roster, you only had a few reputable three, reputable three-point shooters um, that could consistently make shots. Um, and honestly... Again, I mentioned Allen Houston being their leading one, uh, just under three attempts per game for 40%. And then Latrell Spiro right behind him, uh, just over two attempts, and he shot a horrible 27%. So, you know, you weren't getting uh, you weren't getting too much from those guys. But Larry Johnson was kind of the best that it was, which is saying something, being that he wasn't, let's just say, the, the prototypical uh, such for. Yeah, and, and it seems to me like the Knicks really rely a lot on the mid-range game. Spreewell, that was kind of his uh, bread and butter. You, you mentioned already that it, that was Larry Johnson's as well, and, and given that Houston didn't shoot threes particularly well, at least in that postseason, that was, that was kind of where he liked to live also. 
Patrick Ewing as well is, was kind of a, a mid-range guy. Kurt Thomas uh, w- was able to, to step out and, and knock down a mid-range jumper. So um, the, the, the next question I guess I have for you is, who uh, you know if, if Ewing's healthy is it is it Chris Dudley that sort of comes out of the uh, comes out of the rotation because I noticed watching a little bit of that uh, of that Spurs Knicks series that the Spurs were just completely disrespecting Chris Dudley putting like guards on him and uh, really not thinking of him as much of a threat. Yeah, everyone was disrespecting Chris Dudley back in the day. There was that Shaq dunk. You had the Spurs. I wouldn't be surprised if their own Knicks team. Like, yeah, Chris Dudley would definitely be out. I mean, horrific. He was another body, another big guy, you know, in an era that that still stood for something. A historically horrible free throw shooter um, at 33, not really athletic in terms of bringing any vertical spacing uh, on the floor there at all. I mean, he was just a guy that soaked up some minutes, uh, banged around for two points and four rebounds a game. Uh, yeah, he would easily be out. And you're right, you would see... Ewing get those minutes, Marcus Camby off the bench, Kurt Thomas getting a lot more. You know, it's strengthened a little bit there, but between uh, Camby, Ewing, uh, Johnson, and uh, and Thomas, you have a nice big rotation that is more talented and and, and without reason of bringing in Chris Dudley. He would be where he should, you know, waving the towel for the Knicks then. Yeah. Um, So so looking at some of the matchups in this series, so, you know, what players do you think for the Knicks could, could go off? What... What uh, sort of advantages do you see going kind of player by player here? I'm honestly for the Knicks. I'm looking. I feel like at best Ewing and uh, Moses Malone would cancel each other out, and that's and I'm being very, very, very optimistic when I say this because although we're getting healthy versions of them, I'm still stuck with 36 year old Patrick, and uh, you have a 25 year old Moses Malone. And after watching just a little bit of that 81 Rockets, I, I don't need to really compare the two. Um, just kind of knowing how that would go. But I do think having Allen Houston and Latrell Sprewell on the wings is more than a match for some of the, the Rockets and their roster as well, simply because I just don't think they have the length and athleticism required to defend those guys consistently. You know, you have um, a Robert Reed, who was, from all accounts, a pretty good defensive stopper. But up and down to that, I'm seeing guys with are undersized or appear too small to consistently match up. You know, you had a, I don't remember much of John Stroud. I've seen enough of Rudy Tomzonovich to know that he would have been ran circles around by Houston and Sprewell on the break. Um, and I feel like the Knicks would at least selectively go to that a little more to take advantage of the speed factor they have there. Um, point guard play, it's kind of a wash. I mean, I mean, not really. Cal- Calvin Murphy, uh, just on principle, I guess, would be better than uh, Charlie Ward, although Chris Childs was pretty solid. Um, the Knicks' backcourt was pretty much always a weakness um, outside of uh, Houston and Sprewell. Well, they were really more of the forwards throughout the late 90s, early 2000s. After Derek Harper, there wasn't really a whole lot of note um, for them. So I'm really narrowing it down. Kirk Thomas and Marcus Canby would make a difference in some way, I think, just having that size and, again, that athleticism at the 4-5 and five as a change of pace matchup for... Billy Paltz and guys who really couldn't deal with him in that way, you know. Um, but honestly, the strength to me lies in the strength of the Knicks from 99 to 2003, which to me was Allen Houston, Latrell Sprewell. Those guys were dynamic offensive creators who could create their own shot, had the best three-point range, but were definitely more mid-range assassins, could get on the break and, and pour it up and, and fill it in often. And so I feel like those two would be the stars of this series against the Rockets. 
Yeah, honestly, if I'm Houston, I put Billy Pultz on Ewing and put Moses Malone on Larry Johnson. Um, uh, and, yeah. And, I don't even consider him a strength in this match. He's a guy who fits right in, banging in and stuff, but because he wasn't stretching out his best, he's, he's, he's right in the muck. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's someone to go to, but you're right. Um, uh, Moses, at that time, especially with a, a pretty, I mean, even healthy then, he wasn't, I mean, Johnson was what he was. You know, after he went to New York from Charlotte, he wasn't grandmama of old. So I do think you're right. You'd have more of a match there with Malone against uh, against my, uh, my guy Johnson. Yeah, and I guess the, the main concern there for me is I'm worried about Pulse's uh, inability to move his feet, try to defend Johnson. Because uh, even though Johnson, as as we mentioned, wasn't the greatest stretch player, he still had some pretty good quickness. So you, you have to be able to move your feet. To, to deal with him, and, and I like Moses' chances better with that. And, you know, um, again, the, the Knicks were the 26th-ranked offense through the regular season with uh, Patrick Ewing playing. So, you know, if you want to throw Patrick Ewing, 36-year-old Patrick Ewing, the ball a bunch of times to post up Billy Paltz, you know, I, I say go for it. I feel like we had no choice back then. We, you know, he was still the king of New York. No, I'm playing. But you're right. You're right. I, I think you're right. If we're doing that, it's... It's as much out of our element as pretty much anything was during those times. Yeah, so so now I'm curious to hear your take in terms of that, that 90 Knicks, 99 Knicks team gets home court in this series. So if this goes seven, you know, they get the advantage of, of playing in New York and playing in, uh, in the 1999 rule set. But um, we, we've got the three-point line regardless of, uh, of who's playing at home because the, the three-point line was, was brought in, I believe, in... In that uh, in that season that, that Houston that made the finals, um, uh, yeah, actually I think it was just before the seventy nine eighty. Oh right, right, um, yeah. right, right when when Bird and Magic came into the league, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the um, the the different eras and and you know how do you think the Rockets will would play playing in nineteen ninety nine and and how do you envision the the Knicks playing in nineteen eighty one? Exception of Malone and Reed, 
we're kind of older. Um, I guess we're, you know, unless we're excluding uh, Calvin Garrett in the six points a game, which, you know, I don't know enough about him to make a, a firm decision. Mike Dunleavy was definitely still uh, very good as an outside shooter and uh, a partial playmaker. He got three, well, not a partial playmaker. He was second or no, fourth in the team with assists, but he's a guy who like, doesn't really wow me with quickness. Um, it's weird. I've been thinking about this for a minute. And, of course, I have to make the case for the Knicks. But this is why I actually think it's the Knicks. At the end of the day, I, I think those two guys in Houston, I mean, Houston won a series for the Knicks in the playoffs, yeah, albeit on a, a clutch, uh, you know, lucky bounce shot, but he did. And Latrell Spruill was definitely going off back then. I feel like those two can carry the Knicks offense for a same stretch, you know, when, of course, you get the ball to Ewing, but just in terms of, identifying the matchups and as far as coaching is concerned although Van Gundy definitely had you know he's coming in and picking up where was left off I'm sure that he was great enough of a coach to see where the matchups lied where the Knicks could take advantage and he would press that and honestly I don't see how the Rockets make an adjustment that could really take those two out you already mentioned Paul would have his hands full with Johnson you put Malone there then you have a different issue with Paul's on Ewing who even then I still think was pretty effective um I, I, I still see Houston and Spruill being the difference. Interesting. So, so I guess let me let me ask you this: Out of the two teams, uh, is Moses Malone the best player in the series? I think easily. Only, yeah. I mean, yeah. he was the MVP. So, it, you know. So, so right there, uh, most of the time, I don't, I don't want to say that it's the, it's the rule, but uh, uh, most of the time, if you've got the best player right off the bat, you've got a significant advantage. Um, and then when you're talking about, uh, you mentioned Spreewell and, and Houston. Obviously, those guys were, were talented scorers. But for Spreewell, for instance, you know, he was more of a, um, you know, volume score than, than really an efficient score. And, and Robert Reed, you can throw him on one of them. I think he's a, a pretty solid option. And then, you know, Mike Dunleavy, I think, was a, was a solid, at least intelligent defender, even if he didn't have the greatest athletic tools in the world. The, the, ch- the challenge for Houston is can you bring in a guy like Calvin Murphy off the bench and, uh, you know, is, is, is his offense that he's bringing, does that offset sort of the defense that, that he lacks just due to his size and would the Knicks just relentlessly sort of attack him? But I also wonder can you, can you bring in Murphy for, for moments when one or two of, uh, of Houston and Sprewell are off the floor also? So, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I really like the, the the scoring front court that this Rockets team had. You know, you're you're consistently in the postseason getting 15 to 20 from from Malone and Reed, and even Billy Poltz had a decent little skyhook post game that he could go to if you if you put a small on him, uh, he could take advantage of that. So uh, you know, you you factor in the the inside scoring plus the outside scoring of a guy like Calvin Murphy. And I, I, I do question whether the Knicks can keep up offensively. Wow. I mean, I, I would say I agree because offensively was not the Knicks, you know, bread and butter at all, but the Knicks defensively were stout. That uh, surprisingly frenetic kind of defense for them. All those guys, Houston was effective. Sprewell was almost effective to the point of being overrated as a defender back then. Um, I do think defensively they hold some of them in check, especially since a lot of those guys weren't creating their own offense. It was really off of inside-outside game from Malone. Uh, with the exception of maybe Calvin Murphy um, and maybe a couple shots from Dunleavy, these Rockets weren't kind of taking anyone off the dribble. 
um, they held opponents to a pretty tight uh, 85 points a night. I mean, this is back then the slowdown era. They were barely outscoring that, but I don't know. I think the Knicks defense, with that length and athleticism, um, is probably a little bit more than the Rockets have to handle, or at least one. I think they give a major, major way to Malone in the front court, just wreaking havoc, but uh, outside of maybe Robert Reed and, and maybe 32-year-old Calvin Murphy, who I would imagine, I mean, he only played a couple more seasons after that, had lost a little bit of a step. I don't think the Knicks are really worried about any of the, the backcourt or forwards of the Rockets kind of penetrating at will, so to speak. Yeah, I guess this is where I, I kind of, you know, watching just the two-team style of play, you know, I, I referenced that the, the, the 81 Rockets kind of play similarly to the, the 2000 Blazers where it's a lot of cross-screening action, down-screening. They, they ran a system to get their shots. You know, they, they ran those down-screens to get Reed or Dunleavy the ball at the free-throw line with a potential 15, open 15-footer or the ability to, to, to move it from there or to, to, to post up Malone. And then when Calvin Murphy's coming into the game, they're, they're, they're uh, setting off ball screens for him to, to run around and, and catch the ball. So it is very much like a, you know, an offensive system where the, the, the passing and the movement and the screen setting kind of gets guys open and, and they had guys that could knock down shots. And then also, you know, they're, they're a pretty solid offensive rebounding team as well with one of the greatest rebounders ever in, in Moses. Um, where, whereas you watch that Knicks team, and it is a lot of isolations. They, they run some cross-screen actions as well, but a lot of just, uh, you know, get, posting up the likes of Spreewell, Houston, Ewing, and, and just letting them go one-on-one. Um, I, uh, I, I, I do question um, whether the Knicks can, can score enough against the, this Houston team because, again, I, I don't want to compare this Houston defense to the Spurs. They're nowhere close, but they did have that same size where you're playing two traditional bigs so you're you're somewhat taking away the basket in the half court um and and also robert reed at the three just really good size there yeah i i, I can agree to the extent on that like you said the Knicks offense and as much as i was pumping up houston as pretty well i mean it's not like they were on this team and this team offensive was not great so uh for sure, like you said a lot of shots a lot of inefficiency their style was different um, for certain, but I feel like, you know, especially for that time, you had the Knicks come up against teams that they had to chase shooters around. Um, just with Miami, you had Marley, Max Byrne, uh, Vashon Leonard, um, Indiana, I think one of the best guys manipulating and using a screen Reggie Miller. The Knicks able to take him out. If they were to do that with that, I mean, looking at Dunleavy and what, maybe two or three other guys I'm kind of worried about that I think, regardless of the system being as intricate as it was to maybe spring players open, it's not like the Knicks style of defense wasn't used to having to chase shooters around screens and, and, and down screens and move it to create open shots when a lot of the teams they played with, the exception of maybe Atlanta, relied on that to generate offense. And Miami, probably even a little bit closer because they had a, a big in, in, in morning who they kind of went to as well. So I think it's, I don't think it'd be something that would, let's say, throw the Knicks in for a loop as far as their defense not being able to translate. I do think their defense will translate very well. Um, to that of the 80s, at least in terms to this Rockets team, just in terms of the competition they played that had similar styles. However, I, I'm trying to argue relentlessly about that offense. I I don't know if I can make enough of a case with the numbers being what they were, aside from the fact that I think the Knicks' athleticism might give them a little more of an edge on the Rockets, at least offensively. But at the end of the day, 
I mean, between their style, a lot of offense, uh, a lot of ISO, a lot of plotting, um, they kind of were where they were. So maybe there's more of a ceiling against this Rockets team in terms of the night maybe not being able to deal with um, a matchup of Houston or Spear, or at least only being able to take one of them out while giving a, a, a great advantage to the other. But, um, yeah, that's... It's tough to argue. Darn these Knicks offensively. Sheesh. <laughs> I I, I, there's only so much of an argument I can make, and mine is a lot of saying, listen, I know they weren't super great on the offensive end, but they would have been better against the defense of the Rockets I'm not super sold on. Uh, I guess that's right. kind of where I draw the line in terms of my argument there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I guess my, my rebuttal to that is, Volume scores are typically volume scores, regardless of the quality of the defense. <laughs> um, and it, to me, it's a lot of that with with that New York Knicks offense. Yeah, maybe they'll be slightly more efficient, but uh, uh, I don't know how much. Um, the The other thing that's interesting, you know, talking about the teams that they beat, that eighty one Rockets team beat the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers with Kareem and Magic. Uh, and uh, then lost to Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics, but played a very competitive series. They lost that in six um, and, and, and lost that game one, which they had, I think, a, a five-point lead with, with just a few minutes to play. Whereas, you know, the Knicks beating a, a 99 Heat team that, that certainly wasn't as accomplished as those Showtime Lakers. And, uh, and then really, you know, we're able to take one game off of the Spurs, but it, it never really felt like they had much of a chance. Yeah. I mean, with the exception of that blowout winning, I mean, with the, with the exception of, uh, looking at the wrong series here, with the exception of that one win, actually, I want to make, okay, I feel like game five, no, no, I'm, <laughs> I am really grasping for straws here right now. Um, yeah, I mean... Okay, looking at it, I watched, like I said, I watched most of Game 5 of the 99 Knicks. Obviously, Spiro went off. Again, this was where, and even then, a lot of it was skewed because Ewing wasn't there, and the Knicks were making it off the transition. Even then, they only had one game or two games where they cracked over um, 80, 85 points. Um, but even, I don't know, it felt like... Again, though, you're kind of in control of this this Knicks team. So if you wanna if you wanna put Ewing in Chris Dudley's role, you can do it. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like well, it's weird. I feel like that might be one of the best. Because here's the thing: Ewing was very effective. He was very good. He, you know, Hall of Fame player. But '99 was like his last solid season. Like he faded faded hard. You know, 2000 he came through in spots, and by after that he was shot. Um, and I feel like if you put him in Dudley's role, then yes. Bringing in Thomas, you're bringing in Canby, you can focus more on transition. Um, maybe trying to run the Rockets to the ground, but then again, it's more of that Twin Towers effect where the Knicks were just hammered in the finals by David Robinson and Tim Duncan relentlessly. Um, they just had the size there, and that almost hurt the Knicks to an extent because their offense wasn't that efficient. They were running you off the floor, and they had to defend the other end, and honestly, those guys were just too much. Um, even Wilson Brewell's best efforts... Um, and for most of the game, and then Allen Houston exploding in that one Knicks win. So, yeah, you know what, man? I'm trying to put a big fight. I might have to concede this to you, if only because, it, like, as compelling as I think it is, as interesting, I do think it'd be very tight. I don't think any one team's walking, let's say, away with it. But if you try to take the Knicks style to go smaller and spread it out more, you're not guaranteeing that you're going to blow past the Rockets while you are conceding size and a lot of points and rebounds 
system alone. And if you go the more traditional route, yes, I guess you have a better chance in one way, but you're not taking advantage of of a of an attribute that you do have on your team, which is that speed and athleticism that you could use to affect against a Rockets team that I really think in terms of age and how they played wouldn't necessarily be able to match up. But if the Knicks can't stop them or effectively enough on one end and aren't able to uh, take full advantage of any offensive advantages that they have, I don't know how they win. And whether you go with Ewing or without him, you're kind of in a pickle just because you're not getting 93 Ewing, getting 99, and that, that's a different guy altogether. Absolutely. So yeah, I um, you made it. You made a compelling case, but I, I'm sticking with Rockets and six. What do you have? You know what I have. So my optimistic guy had put Knicks and seven, but uh, I'm gonna go with you, Rockets and six. Once we talked out a little bit more, I'm able to see some uh, arguments I easily didn't make just because I'm like, come on, Knicks, baby. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go over to him. Agree with you. I'm gonna say Rockets and six. Okay. So uh, we we will. Again, we will be sending any ones that we don't agree with uh, to, to Twitter to let all of you decide, but uh, glad we, we were in agreement there. I'm very excited for this next one. This is going to be a lot of fun. We've got the 2010 Phoenix Suns versus the 1995 Phoenix Suns. And uh, this will actually be a matchup of two teams that, based on my, uh, my criteria and how, how, is, how I was seeding the teams, they actually are both eight seeds, so whoever wins this jumps all the way up to an eight seed in the bracket. Um, so, so two real quality teams, and of course, uh, you know we we have uh, in the bracket versions, sort of better versions of both of these teams. I think you have the 2007 Suns with with Nash, Stoudemire, Diaw, and then you have the '93 Suns, the team with with Barkley and and Kevin Johnson that that made the finals and lost to the Bulls. So this will be interesting. It's it's really the, uh, uh, a, a matchup of two of the best iterations of, of the, uh, the the Phoenix Suns organization. Um, but uh, you've got you've got uh, two real high powered teams as well with uh, you know the Nash Stoudemire pick and roll and of course the the uh, Barkley posting up and, and Kevin Johnson just being a uh, a very quick player that can get really anywhere he wants. Yeah, I'm, I've been just ready anticipation for the series. Um, you may not know, but I wrote an article about the 95 cents, two of them, in fact. So, uh, yes. they're a team that, uh, I mean, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I really did, but I'm just messing around in terms of, you know, they're a team that I liked. They kind of stuck past the radar. I thought Suns, I thought 1993, always, for like the 90 cents. And then later on, um, I actually, uh, there was a really good book about the 1995-1996 uh, Suns um, and the dysfunction they had with Paul Westphal, um, Westphal being uh, dismissed midway through the season, Kyle Fitzsimmons being returned, um, Charles Barkley in his last year in Phoenix, and the Suns somehow kind of limping their way to a 41-41 finish. Uh, when I find the name of the book, I'll try to reference it, but it was really interesting. And that was another kind of look at the Suns I had uh, um, kind of thought about for the 90s. But the 95 Suns team, was kind of sneaky deep, um, especially since we're taking into account that there aren't injuries. Um, right. Because for one, Danny Manning is a guy I look at, but you, this 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 matchup for both is good. And you mentioned that there's better iterations of these same era of teams that are kind of in here that you know we'll get to later on. Um, but these guys were guys that like almost made it. You know, they didn't quite clear the mountaintop. Um, in certain ways, but they were like the next best iteration of that era's respective 
Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because you, you think of uh, the 93 Suns being kind of the, the peak of that team, and of course that was really the peak of Charles Barkley's career, too, winning MVP. But then in 94, uh, he, he was dealing with a bunch of, of back issues throughout a lot of that uh, that season. And so 95 and even 96, he kind of got a, a little bit healthier again, and, and those were kind of his last two great years. Uh, but, but yeah, that 95 Suns team, really interesting in terms of uh, yeah, you've got kind of A.C. Green in that they, they, they kind of went with a um, more traditional sort of 80s lineup with Green at the three uh, in, instead of the likes of a Tom Chambers or a Richard Dumas. And then you also have Joe Klein at center instead of the, the combination of Mark West and, and Oliver Miller. Um, and uh, you, you had Danny Manning, an, a nice addition, as you, as you mentioned, uh, and then also a better Kevin Johnson. Uh, so, so there are a lot of a lot of uh, unique differences. Some things that I think made the team better. Some that made them worse. And of course, I think just Barkley, Ainge, and Marley also weren't quite as good in '95 as they were in '93. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Barkley kind of crushed it. His last like like near post prime years. Um, still really saw him that low block. Um, still flashed a three-point shot that he truly, you know, didn't fully have, but didn't stop him from shooting it, you <laughs> yeah. know. Uh, I think he was just third on the team in three-point attempts behind a guy in Dan Marley and another guy in Wesley Person who should have been taking them. Um, and he actually shot a pretty decent clip for Barkley at 33%, um, but the guy would jack them up on the regular. So, yeah, this, this team, again, is not the 93 kind of heyday um, Suns team, but this is kind of their last hurrah. Um, in terms of like having a really solid team that could, could contend, and you mentioned AC Green being a solid kind of Iron Man guy, um, but a rugged rebound. You had extra scoring in Danny Manning, um, and then Wayman Tisdale as well. Um, Elliot Perry was a very good backup guard who could spell Kevin Johnson, who I think was was probably in his prime in his be- almost best form. Absolutely, um, Suns. Yeah, just penetrating at will. Could not shoot a lick from three. Uh, literally shot 15%, yeah, on a 4 of 26 from out there. That was not his game. But mid-range and in, Waterbuck quick, great finisher, couldn't really stop him, great free throw shooter. Um, Danny Ainge was in his last uh, season of his career. Um, even at 35 was another solid three-point shooter. Um, good guy who studied the bench, uh, what, averaged three, seven points and just under three assists. Still a very good guard, even though defensively he was kind of cooked at this point already. Even though he's pretty solid throughout his career. Um, Joe Klein was a banger under the body, but he actually had a pretty decent mid-range shot as well. Um, and could spell some minutes there. And, and Dan Marley, yeah, you know, he was this is pretty much where he was going to be, 29. He would give a couple more good years like this, um, up through like I'd say 98, 99 Miami. And then it was pretty much the end for him. But at this point, he kind of was what he was, a guy who had good size, good frame, decent defender. Uh, 15, 4, and 4, you're not going to complain about that. And shooting uh, a pretty good percentage from 3, uh, well, 36% for the time on 6 attempts a night, not bad. So I think he was still, you know, it's not 89-90 Dan Marley, but he was still a very solid player. Um, shot a decent 36% from 3 on 6 attempts a night, almost 7. Um, you know, at, at age 29, he still had a couple more effective role player years left. And, I think Dan Marley is kind of almost symbolic of this whole Suns team. Yes, each player up and down this roster probably had better days, with the exception of maybe Wesley Person. Um, 
But they were still very good in their roles, and they were still a solid, competent team. And, and I think that's what kind of makes the gist of this team. And, and they had just enough veteran experience up and down the roster that they were still tough to beat. And, yeah, they may not have been their in-prime selves, but they were a dang hard out. Absolutely. That Suns team won 59 games, had a positive 4.1 point differential, uh, went 6-4 and four in the postseason before falling in 7 to the uh, eventual champion Houston Rockets, despite uh, KJ dropping 46 in that game 7. Uh, oh my the, uh, the 2010 Suns, they won 54 regular season games, but actually had a better point differential than the 95 Suns. The 2010 Suns had a positive 5.1 point differential, in large part due to having the number one ranked offense in the NBA. Both these teams with, with great offenses. Uh, but but I would argue that the 2010 Suns uh, were even better on the offensive end with, with Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire with that classic pick and roll and, uh, you know, didn't have probably as good of spacing as maybe the, um, uh, at least in the starting lineup, because they're starting Robin Lopez and also Grant Hill, who who wasn't much of a, a three-point shooter. But off the bench, they had a ton of shooting. They brought the likes of Goran Dragic, Jared Dudley, and Channing Frye, who all were prolific three-point specialists. Uh, and, and, yeah, Jason Richardson, a, a solid wing scorer as well. Probably the best wing scorer that Suns team had since they, they had Joe Johnson back in the mid-2000s. Yeah, he's probably the best they had since uh, since Wesley Person back here. No, I'm playing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they had a, a really solid squad. You're right, between Jason Richardson having a really standout year, the bread and butter being Nash and Stoudemire, um, I was kind of worried about that matchup. Uh, as we're talking, I'm still worried about that matchup between Stoudemire and, uh, you know, just hit that athleticism and, and bulk. Um over a client or Lord help us all at Barkley um, <laughs> on the defensive end. But yeah, they were solid. And you're right, the, the shooting on the starting lineup was kind of weak. But coming off the bench, a lot of guys who could space the floor. Um, and that was effective for them. This Suns team, though, I mean, you had guys who would take them. I mean, AC Green wasn't the best three-point shooter, but he would start taking Elliot Perry was a low-volume guy, but he would take them. Dan Marley obviously led the way. Wesley Person, another sniper. Charles Barkley would at least stretch the floor. I'm going to stop right there. Um, and then Danny Ainge <laughs> was still very effective um, in just under 20 minutes a night um, playing 74 games. He was definitely getting a lot of run as well. And if we're going by them all being healthy, um, I think to make up for – I mean, the Suns had a lot more of their um, three-point shooting and probably the best three-point shooting between the two teams coming from their bench for sure. And the Suns, I think, had a little more sprinkled up and down. I mean, I do think if you're looking at Marley – person, uh, let's go Perry and Ainge, you're getting three-point shooting um, just in general. And I think that that is effective. And then, whether we take up the spotty shooting of Barkley or not, I mean, he's making one a night. I mean, he's, yeah, he's making one a night on three attempts. I mean, it's still enough to stretch the floor reasonably well. Um, but yeah, I have to kind of concede shooting to the 2010 Suns. The love of uh, Jason Richardson at the time was a lot. Um, the guy was a monster. Um, and yeah, the, the 2010 Suns had, had a pretty solid uh, roster. They had a pretty, they had a pretty solid team. I, I'm not trying to make a, a case for you, but um, <laughs> uh, defensively, the Suns. I mean, they were 19th in defensive rating back then, um, and that was giving them 106 points a night. 
You're talking the 90. You got to specify which Suns team you're talking about. Here. I'm sorry. I'm talking about my 95 Suns team. I forget. <laughs> we're both in the same teams now. So the 95 Suns were just bleeding points on the defensive end. That was not the calling card. But offensively, second in points per game, second in pace, third in offensive rating for that time. I see a lot of weapons up and down. Um, I, I, I think in Danny Manning, you have a skilled cerebral big man who was second on the team and scoring 17 points a night. Six rebounds, three assists, and he's healthy. Um, didn't tear his ACL for the second time in his career that year. Um, and so he's another guy who, in tandem with Barkley, is great front cook scoring. And then you have solid rebounders and skilled passes as well. Um, Barkley had some decent passing vision, could always rack up assists, and knew where and when to pass out the double team. Um, and then between Marley and Kevin Johnson, I mean, I take the advantage of Johnson, especially against a Steve Nash's defense. And if you want to switch up matchups here and there, Grant Hill was still effective, but Dan Marley, you know, while shooting very well, could definitely still get to the cup. Um, and there's, there's an argument to be made there. Um, AC Green, another solid rebounder, toughness. Um, mid-range shooter, I'd say a lot more than three-point shooting, but he could stretch out there. And uh, off the bench, Wayman Tisdale, another guy who could score inside, stretch it moderately for a big in the 90s. I um, had a decent mid-range jumper. And then Elliot Perry, uh, aside from the knee-high socks, another guy who distributed the ball well and was kind of waterbuck quick and a decent shooter for his own right. So there's some weapons on the Suns end, on the 95 Suns end, that I think would make uh, enough of a challenge defensively for the Suns of the 2010, even though I am conceding that defensively, if those Suns weren't stopping teams in 95, they aren't trying to stop the 2010 Suns either. That pick and roll for National Stoudemire is probably there all night. Yeah, I mean, again, this. These teams are very similar, as you mentioned that uh, that '95 Suns team, uh, you know, second or third in, in offensive rating out of 27 teams at the time, and, and 19th in defensive rating, uh, and then again the, the 2010 Suns first out of 30 teams in offensive rating and 23rd out of 30 in defensive rating. So neither of these teams were getting stops, but they were both getting buckets. So this is definitely going to be a like 120-118 sort of finals in, in, in a lot of these games in, in this matchup. Um, and, and yes, I am I'm very concerned as to where the hell I'm going to put Steve Nash. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, not uh, not going to be able to guard Kevin Johnson in the slightest. Uh, and, and yeah, the, because the Suns went with those uh, those bigger lineups with, with A.C. Green starting at the three, and then you've got Dan Marley, you can't really put him on those guys either because both those guys can post up as well. Uh, the, the one thing I will say about the 2010 Suns, in 2010 they can play some zone, and they did that a lot. Um, that you know, watching that 2010 Western Conference Finals, the Suns went to a lot of zone defense. So that's something, especially in the home games, that that 2010 Suns team will go to. But the '95 Suns team has home court in this series, so in a game seven, I can't rely on that zone. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I I, I knew a little bit of that just watching a few of the games, but I hadn't taken a full account of that, and that might be enough. No, I think it will make things interesting. Um, again, I, I press the advantages, you know, the zone covered a lot of sins, especially for some team that rely on some pretty poor defenders, uh, both for their position in general. Sotomayor was, was a body, was a big guy, had some athleticism, but didn't really use it, let's just say, to the best of his abilities in the defensive end. And Nash, with a combination of age, um, just not being the quickest of foot in general, and also just defensively being more of a, a better help defender, or someone who was more willing to help than someone who was able to stick on his man one-on-one. I'm just going at that relentlessly. Um, if 
you can switch it on that. I'm still going to that relentlessly. We're trying to at least play him off the floor or at least put my vans where we get to know that there's a, a place to eat all night long on that end. Um, zone or no zone, the zone might be a little bit of an issue in some way, especially with the lack of shooting um, from you know our, our, our point guard just in general. But I think it's penetration and the ways the Suns are able to free up guys to kind of get open and go downhill. Um, the 95 cents, I think that that's something that's still, while being maybe a little bit more of a challenge, isn't something that's taking the 95 cents entirely out. Especially when you had guys like Barkley who would take the ball and bring it up off the break and could do it moderately well. You know, as someone who was just like a runaway locomotive, um, just kind of going to the rim. Yeah, the the matchups are fascinating. The Obviously, the power forward matchup, you know, I, I don't trust, as you mentioned, Stoudemire, a, a strong athletic guy, but never really was a committed defender. I, I don't trust him dealing with Barkley. I'm, I'm hoping that Barkley will settle for taking 10 threes a night. I, that's what I'm praying for. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't trust Stoudemire dealing with Barkley's size and strength and and, and uh, skill. And then on the other end, I, 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 uh, I, I love the matchup of just attacking Barkley, because Barkley wasn't uh, the, the, the quickest defensive player, and, and Stoudemire, one of the quickest bigs in the history of the sport. Um, so, you know, just with just Stoudemire facing Chuck up is, is going to be a problem, I imagine, for that 95 Suns team. Um, and, and yeah, the, uh, the other thing with, with that 2010 Suns running that pick and roll, you know, how, how is the 95 Suns going to defend that action? You know, are you going to switch it? If you're going to switch it, you know, Steve Nash is going to isolate against Barkley all day long. Uh, you know, if uh, if you play it conservatively, you know, I trust Steve Nash to to hit the pull up jumper or you know find a shooter when 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 the defense helps. So, to me, uh, there's uh, there, there's not a lot of good options going either direction. You know, again, uh, the 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 one saving grace, uh, at least in the home games for the 2010 Suns, I can set up a zone defense to try to uh, to somewhat curb that penetration of KJ. Yeah, I mean, defensively, the same way you feel about Stoudemire, I feel to a great extent for Barkley. You know, that, that definitely was an issue for him. Um, I would, I mean, I would love to see, conversely, a, 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 a KJ Barkley kind of go-to pick and roll and see what's done there because you're putting the Suns' worst defenders in an action over and over. That zone may negate, may negate some of the penetration of uh, Kevin Johnson for sure, but then I think you're playing more into the Suns' kind of traditional kick it in, wait for the double, kick it back out because A.C. Green was so effective down the post as someone who was getting it kicked into. Joe Klein was someone who had a pretty decent hook. Um, Barkley was at his best down there. Um, in general, and if put in the zone, and I, I think he's going to position himself on the block, draw the double team, and kick out to a Wesley person or to a uh, Dan Marley, who would have more of an open look against defenders who have to dig in deep to defend a Barkley or or the other big, whether it's a, a Green or a Klein for the Suns. And I think that that might be something that could, at best, soften the zone up a little bit. Um, at worst, I mean, at best, force the Suns to the 2010 Suns to change their defense strategy entirely. At worst, just cause it to soften up a little bit by going inside outside and drawing that double team. Because one on one, I feel like Barkley and Sotomayor are just giving each other the business, but that also affects both defenses. And if Barkley's going to be able to get that in, the Suns are going to send extra help. And then you got guys like Perry, you know, Marley, Ainge, and others who are ready and willing to bomb from outside. 
Yeah, it's um, it seems obvious to me. I guess uh, I'll, I guess I'll ask you just to to make sure you you are in a, agreement here. But uh, Charles Barkley's the best player in this series, right? Oh yes, I still think he is. I was thinking close between him and Sotomayor because twenty ten Sotomayor was great, but a lot of that also was, uh, in my opinion, uh, due to the mastery of Nash and the two working in tandem. Where Barkley was just Barkley that year, and yes, he was in two thousand ninety three, but yeah, he, he's to me still the best of the two teams. Yeah. Um... And arguably KJ too. Interesting. Um, I guess I'm a little higher on Nash as well. I think he's at least in the conversation. But yeah, I would. Oh, I, for sure. Um, I I would go. Uh, I would go Barkley as well. Um, and the the other question, and and you mentioned this in your in your article, and and one of the reasons why you like that '95 Suns team is the bench. But uh, I really like my bench on this 2010 Suns. You know, they would <laughs> Alvin Gentry would go with five man bench units with the likes of of uh, Goran Dragic, Leandro Barbosa. Uh, you've got Jared Dudley, Channing Frye, and uh, Lou Amundsen, who was a good offensive rebounder. Uh, even th- those five men bench units won them a couple of playoff games that uh, that postseason. Yeah, I thought about that. I, I mean, I'm so. I'm, I'm really sold on my 95 Suns bench, especially when healthy, that I think they're still a match. But that 2010 Suns bench is not to be overlooked. They were very effective, and you're right. They had a couple series, um, a couple games where they, they took over. And in the Spurs series, uh, that playoff year, they, they definitely made a big impact. And you're right, you had a nice mix of shooters, energy guys, um, lightning quick guards that made them a pretty good nucleus to kind of uh, supplement the Suns starting five. So. I can see one making the case uh, for that 2010 Suns bench. I'm not because, again, I mean, you had a bunch of guys in who were, I hate to overlook, use the term or overuse the term, but they were problems, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking. Wayman Tisdale, yeah, defensively, not that great. But offensively, another guy who could fill it up. Um, Danny Manning was so, so solid. So, so solid. Um, helped the Suns tremendously. Um, even in spite of his injuries. So with him being healthy, I'm definitely giving him um, a lot of love there. Elliot Perry, yeah, I would take Warren Dragic over him in a second, although Elliot was, was pretty good. And Danny Ainge, at that time, like I said, his last season, so it wasn't as effective. But he was still a guy who, who was made his presence fall on the floor. So maybe I'm giving more to the backcourt of that Suns bench 2010, but I definitely like the offense at least that's provided from this 95 cents team. And if I'm looking at a Wayman Tizzle or, or Danny Manning against a, a Channing Fryer or Lou Amundsen, I don't really think it's much of a contest uh, for the 95 cents. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a fair point. Um, the uh, Both these teams, again, speaking to the similarities, both great offensively, both bad defensively, both pretty <laughs> deep. Uh, so, so, yes, a lot of similarities. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on on the center matchup, the starting center matchup with uh, with Robin Lopez versus Joe Klein. Uh, this is not the Robin Lopez that was uh, a really good center for the uh, the 15 Blazers, which we'll get to in a in a, an upcoming matchup. Um, but you know, still a, a solid energy guy, but uh, certainly very young and, and inexperienced. But also, Joe Klein was kind of just this journeyman center for for much of his career. So who do you, who do you like, or or do you think that's kind of a toss up? I want to make more of a case for the '95 Suns Joe Klein, but I'm I, I'm gonna say it's kind of a toss up. I mean, Klein had a you know great screener, 
Um, like I said, mid-range shot up to the foul line, open up some space, especially for the 90s back then. Um, but other than that, really just a banger. Um, a guy who, you know, knew his role and kind of stuck to it. And Robin Lopez, I mean, for his time, like you said, really more of an energy big, not the really solid center that he would become, um, first of all, now, but definitely back then, um, or you're like we're going to mention with the 2015 Blazers. So I feel like each one has kind of a strength. Robin Lopez energy and, and active um, activeness around the basket, client ability, nowhere to be, and decent mid-range shot. But honestly, I think you can kind of toss them in the hat and pick one up at random. I don't think either is making that much of an impact for either team in this matchup. Yeah, and then the, the, the other interesting thing is, you know, I think both teams are capable of, of going small and, uh, you know, further accentuating their strengths while also accentuating their uh, deficiencies. You know, I, I think with the, the 2010 Suns, you can you can do some lineups with, with Stoudemire at the 5 and Fry at the 4 and have this hypercharged offense with a lack of rim protection. And then with the 95 Suns, you can kind of do the same thing with with the likes of, uh, you could put Charles at the 5 and, and A.C. Green at the 4. Or heck, you know, if they want to go crazy, they could even put Marley at the four if they wanted. Um, so, so both teams have that uh, that versatility to. If they're not into that, uh, you know, mediocre center duel, <laughs> they can uh, they can kind of just get rid of it. Battle, battle of the Titans, indeed. No, I'm kidding. But you're right. Both teams with the ability to be flexible, both small, could make devastating matchups for each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. I guess the, you know the way I look at this is the big question mark is how much do you uh, do you benefit the the 2010 Suns for the fact that they're playing in an era where they are shooting more threes they are taking advantage more of the analytics style of basketball uh, versus uh, you know again I think home court is going to be so crucial in this and again the, the 95 Suns have home court advantage because of the rule sets you know in uh, in in 95 you can't you can't play zone you can't double team in, in as complicated of ways so that just makes it harder for the 2010 Suns to deal with the likes of a of a Charles Barkley on the blocks um, but uh, you know then when when you get into the the 2010 Suns getting getting a, a game at home You've got the ability then to, to play zone, to, to take away KJ a little bit from the proceedings. Uh, so, so really, to me, it, it a lot comes down to, you know, what team is at home and then also how you envision the teams playing with, with the different rule sets. There's also hand checking to consider. You know, Kevin Johnson is, is really difficult to deal with even with hand checking, let alone without it. Uh, so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting sort of things to to parse through here. No, that is true, and how each team would adjust is is something interesting. As far as the three point shooting, I think we're going back to that time. The Suns keep, I mean, the three point line being the I don't want to say the great equalizer, but obviously being a weapon back then. But the Suns using a probably above average, I'd say, alongside the Rockets for '90s teams back then, like really use that three point shot. And the Suns obviously making it a regular part of their diet offensively is interesting, but you're right. Um, you have hand-checking that was barely stopping KJ back then from getting to the lane, and that's something that, again, would just, in general, without would be, with, with would be an issue, without would be an issue, it would just be a hard time stopping from getting there at will. 
at the same time, you mentioned his own defense, the Suns' um, total lack of defensibility, and the fact that as great as KJ was, um, if you were to go under on picks and really kind of dare him to shoot, you know, aside from anything out, outside of 20 feet was suspect for him, you know? Yeah, and then you, you've also got to consider, I just thought of this, starting in the 94-95 season, the NBA shortened the three-point line. So so uh, those percentages that the 95 Suns uh, you know, made were based on a 22-foot top of the key three. Uh, and, <laughs> I'm saying a lot, man. I'm sorry. And so the 2010 Suns can go into Phoenix and get a shorter three-point line as well, and they're already a prolific three-point shooting team. Uh, yeah. So uh, that also that, that changes things a little bit as well. Wow. That's true. I can't even say I really considered that at the time, and you're right, like, these Suns are shooting that percentage with the three-point line. That means KJ was over three-point shooter when it was moved in. I think he got modestly effective later in his career. I'm checking that right now just to be sure, but that doesn't do anything for this matchup right now. And um, you're right, if these are the percentages from, from right there, then all of a sudden, again, we're looking at Marley and Ainge as our best volume three-point shooters, and that's not saying a heck of a lot. Um, yeah, that's pretty rough, and you're right. I mean, all of a sudden, now guys who weren't great three-point shooters for their time um, become great shooters. I'm looking at guys like Grant Hill, um, maybe even Earl Clark. I mean, he didn't get a lot of minutes, but someone like that. Channing Fry is a lot more devastating. Um, yeah, great mid-range shooters like Jason Richardson are just going to go to town. I mean, even Omari might step out. That wasn't really his game, um, like, ever. And, and for that season, he only attempted six threes, um, only made one. So not at all, but you had several guys who shot better than 35% from three. And one guy, Barbosa, who shot 32%, but on 136 attempts. So, yeah, a lot of guys getting them up. Um, yeah. And then for for our 95, for the 95 cents, I guess that is a slight knock because, again, you're shooting out with the regular line. I mean, mind you, these are your rules, but I'm still going to make the case that we have enough three-point shooting. I concede a lot of that to the 2010 cents, you have several noted bombers. Um, you guys definitely have the quantity, and I, I want to say most of the quality, but um, I think the 95 cents have enough to make it work. Um, with the exception of Kevin Johnson, I'm not really worried about anyone's lack of stretchability, even suspect guys like AC Green or um, Charles Barkley, even complete non-entities from three like a, like a Joe Klein. Yeah, I was, to be honest, I was leaning 95 Suns in one of those series where the home team wins every ball game sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, thinking about that three-point line, I mean, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, you you talk about, you hype up that 95 Suns three-point shooting, but again, it's it's based on that line. And, and I'm thinking the likes of Steve Nash, Channing Fry, you know, those Jared Dudley, those guys are like 45% from 3 with those lines uh, shorter. So, um, I'm starting to lean more towards the 2010 Suns, but it is it has been kind of a back and forth as as we've gone through this. I'm not going to lie, if we had ended the conversation maybe just 5 minutes earlier, I would have been squarely 95 Suns and <laughs> totally with it, not a doubt in my mind. But you had to bring up that darn three-point line. <laughs> but now that you're saying that, like, that's kind of a hit for my team because I, I totally slipped my mind that. And real quick, just an interesting statistical quirk, and this throughout the line being moved around, but Kevin Johnson from three, 
from his age 27 through the end of his career. Um, he did not play the 98-99 season. He was retired. So his percentages, 94, 93, 94, 22% on 627. 15% on 426. 95-96, he jumps to 36% on 21 out of 57. Then, in 1997, he has a monster year, 44% from three on 89 out of 202 threes. Then he's, um, then the very next year, he goes back to four of 26. Then he makes one in 2000, and that's his three-point shooting career. Like, that one statistical anomaly of 89 three-pointers in, in that 196-97 season, which I think the line was getting moved back, right? No, that was the season, that was the third season. and final season where it was shortened. Okay, that makes sense. He becomes a no, just a, a bomber from out there, and also his one of his healthier seasons to date, and then just drops right back to normal, uh, just horrible from out there. I just wanted to point that I thought it was an interesting quirk. But um, aside from that, yeah, I. Uh, uh, I still want to stick with the 95 cents because I think there was just enough of a case on that. But with that line being an equalizer there and the Suns already being great three-point shooters from their own line, the 2010 Suns, uh, I, I, I do think they get more at the same time defensively. I'm not trusting it as much as I am the Suns. And I think there's just more offensive-centric weapons that can be taken advantage of for the 95 cents, both starting and off the bench. Your best guys are bad defenders. Your bench aren't noted defenders. The 95 Suns are littered with great scores up and down the line. Um, and I think that, that it would be, a, it'd be a, a, a just barnstorm of a game, you know, game 120 every night. But I, I, I would take the 95 Suns in seven. Interesting. So you made a convincing argument, but I'm I'm gonna stick with uh, I'm gonna go with t- 2010 Suns in six. I think they're gonna be able to steal one on the road on on the 95 Suns home floor by just having a crazy three point night. And I think at home for the 2010 Suns, they can play that zone defense and uh, you know be a little bit more effective. So uh, it'll it'll uh, yeah I think that. Uh, I, I was going back and forth, but I think that's a. I think we both presented some some interesting arguments, so we'll we'll leave that one up to the uh, to the people on Twitter to uh, to decide that one for us to see who advances. I, I knew that was going to be a tough one, uh, but uh, yeah. Was was there anything else you had to say before we, we move on to the next matchup? No, I was going to say again. You brought great arguments. I was a tight one, and like I knew it was going to be interesting, but yeah, I, I'm ready to go to the next one. This was uh, this is good. All right, so. The next matchup is the uh, another matchup of, of two teams from the same organization. It's the 2003 Charlotte Hornets versus the 2016 Charlotte Hornets. Corbin is going to be defending the 03 team, while I am going to be de- defending the the 16 Hornets. Um, for uh, for the the 16 Hornets, they get home court advantage in this series because they went 48 and 34 in the regular season. Uh, actually were expected to win 49 games, but they were top 10 on both sides of the floor. They were ninth in offense, 8th in defense. A, uh, a pretty deep, versatile roster, of course, led by the likes of, of Kemba Walker. And then the, uh, you know, the 03 Hornets, they won 47 games, 16th in offense, but 7th in defense, and led by uh, another star point guard in Baron Davis. Yeah, this is one, I'm, I'm, another intriguing one, with two, I mean, let's face it, both the pack Easter Conference teams with some dynamic guards and 
interesting cast of characters and uh, brief uh, playoff exits. Yeah, um, and and the fascinating thing, just getting right to the point guard duel, is the, these two guys obviously were, were both very good, but good in very distinct, different ways. You know, Kemba with his quickness, his, his off-the-dribble shot-making, whereas Baron Davis, more of that physicality, that slasher type. Uh, but uh, that, that is a very intriguing matchup, the, you know, the head of the snake for both of these teams. Yeah, it, it truly is, and you're right. Each one had their style that was, they were effective in it. Um, Baron, at this point, full-fledged star, um, just 23. Um, I'm glad we're assuming he's healthy because, you know, he only played 50 games that season. Uh, 17 points, success, nothing to sneeze at. Shot the three pretty well, 35% on five threes a night. Um, was really solid. He had another uh, veteran guard. He was alongside David Wesley, another accomplished three-point shooter, another guy who could fill it up, kind of a good combo guard. Um, I love Jamal Mashburn, um, and this was one of Jamal Mashburn's, I'd say, arguably his best season of his career. Um, in the, Just in his prime, age 30, uh, 21 points, six rebounds, five assists. Kind of a do-it-all small forward who had his best, one of his best seasons from three. Not only was he kind of, I don't want to say he was the, the, the main guy for Charlotte with Barron playing as he was, but, I mean, he kind of was. Um, and he was a guy who you kind of go to dependably. And then P.J. Brown, you know, a little off, uh, uh, another uh, veteran big man, a little off his Miami Heat and, and New Jersey net days at 33, but still surprisingly play like another four or five seasons uh, before getting that ring with the Celtics. But another steady guy. Jamal McGlure at center, and another uh, scoring guy, Courtney Alexander. And we can just, I can run down the pack, but you have uh, good defenders, decent backcourt guys, and Kenny Anderson and, and Robert Pack. Um, Courtney Alexander could fill it up for sure. And then you had other defenders like Stacey Ogman and George Lynch, who might have been light on the offensive end, but were definitely pretty good stoppers on the defensive side. Yeah, the um, solid is the perfect word for guys like P.J. Brown and Jamal Baglore. They, they weren't more than that, but they weren't less than that. They're just solid. Um, there you go. Uh, the, uh, the 16 Hornets, you know, uh, obviously had Kemba Walker, but also had Jeremy Lin. They would, they would often play together, but then also, you know, you've got 48 minutes of competent point guard play for that team. Uh, the the other offensive weapon for them, kind of the go-to guy, was uh, Big Al Jefferson on the block. He is a tough guy to deal with. You know, he, he obviously has his uh, deficiencies defensively, but at this time he was an offensive force. Uh, and then, you know, you've got three and D wings in the likes of Courtney Lee and Nicholas Batum and, and Marvin Williams. And then, you know, if, if Al Jefferson, for whatever reason, doesn't have it going offensively or is being taken advantage defensively you know you can you can bring in a guy like Cody Zeller to, to have that versatility at the center position and also you know you, you mentioned that the, the 03 Hornets relied a lot on Jamal Mashburn and his kind of volume scoring I've got a defensive ace that I can throw at him and Michael Kidd Gilchrist I do think that's an interesting matchup because he's healthy now and because uh, he got hurt this season but uh, he's going to be healthy for me this matchup I figured you were going to bring him up. Um, I mean, listen, you're right. He's another guy who can stay in front. But Jamal balled that season. Like, looking at the numbers, I mean, for a high-volume score, the dude was, was you know, hovering around 45% from the field. Um, his mid-range attack was working. He was a terror on the block. A guy whose three-point shot at this point in terms of attempts and, and accuracy was good. I mean, 
I, I do think as an offensive initiator for the Hornets, in, in addition to Baron Davis and, and, and David Westy, that um, Michael Kidd Gilchrist are out of his hands full. Like, that's a guy that you can say, hey, we're going to put on Mashburn and, like, adequately defend him or at least attempt to. I'm um, not saying that Jamal Mashburn's like a LeBron or whatever that, you know, Kid Gilchrist has had or had to match up with in the future. But just in general, as a do-it-all small forward, especially for the mid-range and getting to his spots alongside picks of guys like Eldon Campbell and McGlory or the solid guys we've been mentioning, I, I, I think that Mashburn uh, is more than a match. Yeah, it's uh, it, it would be a fascinating series. I think both of these teams pretty good. Uh, what do you, what do you think about the 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 bench play? To be honest, I, I think this is where you know you, you might you might have a case suggesting that the O three Hornets starting lineup might have a little bit more explosive scoring and and uh, you know quality big men, but uh, I, I think the sixteen Hornets have the edge with the, with the bench play. I would agree. Um, you, you're relying on a lot of guys, Stacey Ogden and George Lynch, who came off, again, solid defenders, but they each combined. I mean, George Lynch averaged four and a half points a game, uh, Ogden three. Uh, neither were great or even average shooters for their position or in general. Um, Kenny Anderson at this point was fading kind of fast. Um, six points and three assists a night, but never really was the greatest shooter. Was shooting just over 40% from the field. Um, and again, we're, we're assuming he's healthy, so that's good, but it's still... Uh, not great what we're getting. And aside from that, uh, Robert Trailer, you know, you're, you're really not getting a whole lot there. Um, Eldon Campbell, a lot of the bench. Courtney Alexander was a guy who definitely liked to get some shots up, and this was fresh off his um, experience with the Washington Wizards with MJ, thinking he was a star. Also, this was coincidentally his last year in the league. Um, but he was a guy who, who thought he was a, another superstar in the league or a guy who could fill it up and uh, – Seven points on a 30% from the field, 33% from three uh, is what you got from him. So I would definitely easily concede the bench to you, um, Garrett, because there's nothing here on the Hornets bench that just signifies anything for me to fight for here. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the other interesting thing to consider is, again, playing in the di- different eras. Uh, in 03, you still got the, uh, I believe you still have the illegal defense, you know, no zone defense and still allowing hand-checking at that stage. I don't really know who that benefits more, you know, because Baron Davis and Kemba both pretty good at, at getting penetration. The The other interesting thing, though, is, again, with the Al Jefferson, the big Al dynamic, is if you can't double-team him in complicated ways, he is a, a, a lot to deal with. He is, but uh, you forget we have the guy called Tractor on our squad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, he wasn't biggest on size, only six foot eight, but two eighty four. Um, Al Jefferson wasn't the fleetest of foot, and if I'm looking for someone to bang with uh, with Al Jefferson, I throw him up there. Um, I feel that McGlure isn't going to be able to handle him. PJ Brown maybe for spells, but especially where he's at, no. Eldon Camp was a little more of a frame to do it. Um, but yeah, I think you're kind of doing it by committee. But he'll be the guy to lean on for just. Like just, I want to say strength, power, just, just, just man, just size, you know. Um, I, I'm really stretching here, but like that's all I really got. Um, and the dude was a big boy. Like he, he was enough that I think, okay, listen, uh, with his post moves and everything, I don't, I haven't watched enough of Robert to see how uh, good or bad of a defender he was. 
in terms of just being able to bang with Al, I say that. Now, as far as Jefferson was just the king of the low post with his, you know, fakes and feints and, and, and just extra, um, just intricate footwork in the post. So he had that he had that uh, he had that real neat little uh, quick push shot that he could get off before you were even really anticipating an attempt. Exactly, going to the base. Yeah, he was he was very accomplished in the low post. Like I'm not trying to discount that at all. That would be my best bet. But even then, you're right. The big position I would give over to um, to the 2016 Hornets just because I see a bunch of decent to like below average defenders, and you have someone in Al Jefferson who is a monster. But I mean. Uh, on our end, uh, again, between Baron Davis and Jamal Mashburn, but we're not even really talking about them. It's really the starting five for the Hornets. That is their strength because Baron Davis and Jamal Mashburn were the, were the bread and butter of it. P.J. Brown and Jamal McGlure were guys who also averaged double figures but weren't really featured guys there. Um, David Wesley was great. That might have been, I mean, the dude had a pretty good, a pretty long season, a pretty long uh, career. Yeah, another, another guy I would just describe as, as solid. Yeah, exactly. But that 2002-03 season was literally, arguably, one of the best of his career. He had another one we had more scoring um, in his age 30 season. But 16 points, three assists, two rebounds. He filled it up. He had a, a bunch of monster games. Um, a very good three-point shooter. Again, like, like you said, a guy who, eh, you know, he was, he was average. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't superb. But he had, you know, always good for between 10 to 20 points a game. Um, three times that season broke over between 30 and 39. Uh, really, he was good for like 20, 25 points a night. And then you're getting between five and nine assists from the dude. Um, so uh, a guy who could benefit from the extra attention that would be given to Mashburn and to um, Davis. Because Kemba Walker is not the, the horrible defender that Nash is. But I also think of him having more than his handful of Baron Davis. You play a different defender on him. I think David Wesley benefits coming from the actions that the Hornets ran to get him open for, for pick-and-pop shots. Yeah, I, I imagine I would put the likes of Courtney Lee on, on Baron Davis and, and, and put Kemba or Jeremy Lin on, on Wesley. Uh, and, and yeah, the, uh, the, the, the big thing that, that I think that the, the 16 Hornets will, will benefit more from is just the uh, they've got a little bit more spacing, especially with with the likes of, uh, of Marvin Williams playing at the four. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you, you talk about Williams, Batum, Lee, Kemba, Jeremy Lin, all those guys, uh, quality shooters. And even, uh, even, even Zeller and, and Al Jefferson could, could hit the mid range. Of course, this is a younger Cody Zeller. So, you know, in, in 2020, Cody Zeller is shooting threes, but he wasn't shooting threes back in, in 2016. So, so I like the spacing more for, for the Hornets. I, I think that's a, a big reason why they were able to finish ninth in, in offense that season, whereas the 3 Hornets were kind of more middle of the pack on, on the offensive end. Yeah, no argument for me there. Um, that Hornets team was fun, and, you, and you're right. They, they spaced the floor a lot better, um, aside from Davis, Mashburn, or, uh, or Wesley. You're not getting a, a lot of great three-point shooting um, from, this, from the um, – Hornets or the two out of three Hornets, um, really after that, that's kind of your best ones. Um, everyone else is low thirties on, on low volume, um, even for that time. So and you're hurting your you're hurting your team's offense if you uh, if you're playing Robert Tractor Trailer as well. Oh, oh, you definitely are. Yeah, I mean he'd be the best again, just physically match up against Al, but 
you're right. Like you're you're not getting any spacing there. He wasn't the most adept in the low post. He was passable, but he wasn't like a savant down there or anything. Um, again, your offense, your your play was going through Mashburn and, and Davis, who was a problem. He was definitely someone there, but in Courtney Lee, have someone who saw enough to, to defend him, um, kind of take him out. I will say that, and you have guys in Jeremy Lin and, and I guess even Kemper who shouldn't really have a problem with um, Wesley. And after that, I guess with Mashburn, uh, again, I, I've watched a lot. I've watched uh, four different 2003 Hornets games um, on YouTube. Um, I, I was really in love. One where him and uh, David Wesley combined for like 65 points. Now, granted, it was against the 2003 Memphis Grizzlies, but they did make the playoffs that season, okay? And they were coached by the great QB Brown. So I'm not taking anything away from those guys. But um, that being said, I mean, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna concede straight up to you. I gave I had in my uh, matchup the 2016 Hornets taking this in six. Um, I do think that you had uh, enough of a weapon in Mashburn and and Baron Davis, especially where they were in their career, how they were playing that time to at least take a game a piece or at least combine in tandem to take two. But all in all, there's just too many advantages for the 2016 Hornets, and that was what I thought before you started breaking down Al Jefferson's game and how you find the matchups and I just don't see the way that the John three Hornets can walk out of it with the win. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I was I was honestly even contemplating five, but but you made a compelling case for the O three Hornets, so I'll go with uh, I'll go with the sixteen Hornets in six. So uh, let's move on to to the next matchup, which is the twenty fifteen Portland Trailblazers versus the twenty thirteen Denver Nuggets. The uh, Corbin, you're uh, you're defending the the Nuggets, correct? Yes, I am. And uh, the Nuggets have home court in this series. The Nuggets won 57 games, 55 expected. They were 5th in offense, 11th in defense. They were elite at home. This was kind of the epitome of a Denver team taking advantage of the altitude that uh, that they have there and uh, playing a really fast-paced transition style with, with the likes of, uh, of Ty Lawson and Andre Iguodala, Kenneth Fareed running the floor at the power forward position, JaVale McGee coming off the bench and providing that athleticism at center, so a team that can really get up and down uh, and, and then also have kind of a, a pretty decent half-court player in the likes of Andre Miller off the bench. Uh, so, so really fun, really fun team. And uh, really, you know, they, they lost in the first round of the playoffs uh, in an upset to the Golden State Warriors, a, a young upstart Warriors team with, with Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson. Uh, but uh, a big loss for them right before the postseason was Danilo Gallinari getting hurt and, and not being available for that series. Yeah, you said it. He was a big, big loss for them. Um, had an amazing season uh, for them. And I love the way, you're right, taking advantage of this fast pace. Um, using that egalitarian offense, you had five different, six different guys in double figures. Um, uh, a, a perfect guy in his role in Andre Godal, who did a little bit of everything, but a waterbuck quick point guard in Ty Lawson, who got to the remedies, was a decent three-point shooter, 36% that season. Danilo Gallinari, 37% from three. Andre Miller being a post-up, you know, just just passing. Uh, I don't want to say so far, I don't want to overuse that word too much, but more than capable in the backward and really having a renaissance season at 36 um, that kind of um, did more than the nine points and six assists would tell you in the stat sheet. But you also had guys like Wilson Chandler, Corey Brewer filling the lanes. I mean, this team 
was a really solid team that anyone at any given night could kind of step up, even if you knew that you would go to your guys like a loss in Iguodala or Gallinari. So a really fun matchup. And a lot of their highlights, if you look back, were just off the break. You know, they were just taking it, ball movement, kick out, penetration. Um, he had some trick shots and such, but this team was just a fun team. And those unis, man, those unis. <laughs> yeah, and... I mentioned Andre Miller, kind of one of their key half-court guys, but also Gallinari, and I think that's probably the biggest reason they lost that that series against Golden State is, you know, again, you can you can get uh, transition stuff in the playoffs, but you also have to be successful in the half-court, and, and without Gallinari, they just didn't have enough creation, I didn't think, in that series. But uh, certainly when they're fully healthy, which they are in this matchup, uh, they, they have a little bit of everything. So speaking to the to the uh, the 2015 Portland Trailblazers, who I'll be defending, they went 51 and 31 in the regular season, but 53 expected wins, ninth in offense, tenth in defense, and and they were actually on pace for 56 wins prior to Wesley Matthews tearing his Achilles and and being done for the season. But uh, you know you talk about a starting lineup that is as solid as it comes. Damian Lillard, Wes Matthews, Nicholas Batum, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Robin Lopez. One of the best starting lineups, honestly, in in the decade of the 2010s. Yeah, that's a really solid, again, a really solid, fun, put-together team from the top down. At least from the starting lineup. <laughs> yeah, the bench was absolutely atrocious. Uh, they did have a young C.J. McCollum, but he really hadn't proven anything yet in the league. Uh, he did end up having an okay playoffs once Matthews went down, but uh, he really wasn't a solidified rotation player in the league at this stage. They had a they had Steve Blake, who I you know is an okay backup point guard, I guess. Laker legend. Yes. Laker legend. <laughs> And then you had uh, you had Myers Leonard who was shooting threes and shooting them well at that time, but he uh, he's not even as good as Myers Leonard from from this season. So uh, the the bench uh, pretty weak, and, and and part of the reason why you know when when they lost Matthews that just hurt them even more because they didn't they ended up making a trade for Aaron Aflalo after the injury, and so because they're staying healthy, we're assuming they didn't make that trade. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, you know, this Blazers team came off the previous year of, of winning against the Houston Rockets, that James Harden, Dwight Howard team with, with Lillard hitting the the buzzer beater in game six before falling to, to San Antonio, the eventual champions in round two. But, you know, you, you have that experience and, and Lillard was even better in 2015 than he was in 2014. Uh, so, you know, prior to that injury, they were right up there. I think a lot of people considered them a, a legitimate contender in the West. Yeah. Uh, again, this is a, a solid all around. You're right with that momentum they had and, and coming off of last year's finish, just building up on that and playing stronger from some of your key guys. That was where they were looking, kind of built to ultimately, I guess, the seventh of where they are now, even if the team had a, a major evolution. Yeah, the, the one big matchup advantage I love in this series for the Blazers is Aldridge at the four. Um, you know, because the, the Nuggets would, would start with Kenneth Fareed, again, a, an energy guy, a rebounder, transition guy, not the, the stoutest of, of post defenders. Uh, and then, you know, they would, 
coming off the bench, they would they would sometimes bring in like a Wilson Chandler to play the four, or they would slide Gallinari or Iguodala down to the four. But really, there's there's not too many people in that Nuggets rotation that I think can slow down uh, Lamarcus. Uh, I mean, I'm not really going to put up a fight for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you could try uh, a Timothy Moskov, but quickness, I don't think, is really a contest. And, uh, you know, aside from being a mid-range monster, um, Aldridge was getting down the post. And, and although he's not the fleetest of foot himself, um, he is at least faster or stronger than most of the bigs that we would have signed there. I would imagine a lot of trapping, a lot of using Iguodala there, using his length and athleticism and, and pretty good strength for his own frame to kind of at least make things difficult and send a trap and just, yeah, at times, straight up, just completely try to double-team um, Aldridge on ball and then just look to recover because that's the one single advantage that you guys have on that end. Um, I was thinking of a matchup that I wanted the Nuggets to exploit. I mean, uh, the t- <laughs> I wanted the Nuggets to exploit, and for me, it was uh, the weird thing is that their strength is by going to different people. I couldn't say, oh, we're going to play through a dollar and make him be the main guy because that wasn't really his game. He's always been a guy who's best suited in a role of like having his, his hand on all kind of faucets of the game, but not like a isolation go-to scorer. Um, Ty Lawson filled more of that role in Dylan, and Gallinari as well. So I was really trying to press on Gallinari um, in the matchup with Lawson against uh, Batum and uh, Damian Lillard. To be honest with you, Batum back then was a pretty decent defender as well. Yeah. Um, in which case, and that's, that's one thing that I think they at least had best average other out because Gallinari had himself an amazing season. Wilson Chandler was on the team, another um, decent score, uh, again, just 13 points per game that year, but another I can go to. And then Ty Lawson, I would imagine, uh, um, could create some type of havoc, even with being as small as he was and having a guy like Damian Lillard, who's not a horrible defender out there. But Lawson was just great. I think you have to continue going what works. Maybe uh, whoever is matching against Andre Miller, um, at the guard position, had Miller take the guy down to the post um, and just hope it's not Wesley Matthews. Um, I mean, because <laughs> he could do it. I mean, and that's another thing. On the other end, you know, if you're putting Wesley Matthews up there or putting Ty Lawson on Daniel Lillard straight up, like the other person that has a matchup issue with uh, Wesley Matthews or Aldridge because if you're putting your best defender, Iguodala, on other squads, you have to compensate for that in other areas. And so, yeah, it, it could be tough. It, it, it could be... Uh, it could be a handful. And again, the, the, like I said, the offense for the Nuggets, the magic of that, what made that work is that everyone was a weapon, but there wasn't really one go-to guy. Everyone had moments, I would argue, between Lawson and Gallinari. But unfortunately, I don't see a glaring weakness on the Blazers' end that makes me think that, oh, they would eat them up. You know what I mean? I'm sure they would get theirs, most assuredly. But I, I don't know if that's like a clear advantage for either of those two. Yeah, it's... Uh... To me, I mean, not to make your the the argument for you, but to me, Denver, what they're uh, what they'd have to do in this series is what they did all regular season long, which is run, get up and down the floor, make it a fast-paced game, and utilize that depth and the altitude. And again, the Blazers had zero depth; they they didn't have quality players six through eight in the rotation, whereas the Nuggets go with quality guys nine men deep. So it's a lot about, and again, they have home court advantage in this series. So in a theoretical game seven, they get that altitude. They get that uh, that home crowd. This is the first matchup we've had where the era doesn't really matter because we're, we're just two years apart. Um, there was probably some, some minor rule changes that took place over those two years, but I didn't, uh, I didn't look into that. Um, but uh, yeah, the... Um, 
I certainly wouldn't want to see uh, Steve Blake guarding Andre Miller. Um, and, and yeah, the, the challenge, too, with you mentioned, yeah, Wesley Matthews would be a good matchup, but Matthews started and, and Miller came off the bench, so I'm sure there's going to be some time in these games where where Miller has some some uh, some good matchups to attack. Yeah, exactly. And he was a guy, I mean, he had that game winner in game one against the, the Warriors. He was a guy, even at 36 at the time, still able to get to the rim, um, was a very good post player for his size and position, um, patient with the ball, great distributor. He was someone who would be a match and you're right. Um, the, the way you can have is play with pace. Do not, absolutely do not get caught in a half-court game for sustained stretches because, one, your strength is on that, and two, um, creating your offense reliably. We kind of already narrowed it down to the two who was who were most likely to do that. You're not really getting a super great three-point shooting team, with the exception of Ty Lawson and Gallinari. Um, Wilson Chandler, 41% on less than two attempts a night, and after that, things just go south really quickly on that. So, you know, you don't want to have to rely on outside shooting um, to make anything happen for the Nuggets. You have to use that speed up and down and, and avoid playing at Portland's pace, but yeah, like you like you mentioned, like you said with um, Andre Miller, he's was a surprisingly effective player. I was watching some of uh, just highlights of that, um, especially in the post. Go down to him, he would totally overwhelm Steve Blake, and honestly, most other guards. I think maybe like you said, Wesley Matthews. Uh, you don't have Aaron Farrell there for you, so yeah, Wesley Matthews. Uh, whatever switch you want to make to kind of put a guy to Andre, it's not like he was posting up everyone in town again and again and again back then, but. Um, he is someone that, you know, you get the right matchup on, there's no problem dumping it down and forcing uh, Portland to have to compensate and change up. Yeah, and uh, the, the other guy I'm worried about for the Nuggets is, is Ty Lawson and his quickness. You know, obviously those Blazers team with, with Lopez played that conservative drop-back defense. And Lawson, I mean, it can't be understated just how lightning quick that guy was. And, um, you know, Lillard... At the time, really, uh, really emerging as an offensive star in the league, but still, I, I would say, kind of a weaker defender. Um, so, so Lawson is another guy. Really, both point guards for for that Nuggets team concern me a little bit. Yeah, I, I, Ty Lawson's strength to me easily was his quickness and speed. Being a good shooter that year, you know, he had some years where but he kind of faded out, but for the most part, very solid three point shooter. I guess. Maybe I'm overseeing Damian Lillard's defense. I, I can't lie. I didn't watch a lot of 2015 Damian Lillard. I get a full game to see. I feel like Ty Lawson would definitely get his. I just don't know if it would be the, the single, like, complete makeover. Oh, my goodness. Let's rework our entire strategy because Ty Lawson is just wrecking us all over. You know what I mean? Um, in ways that I've made arguments for other teams or other players earlier. Ty Lawson would definitely be a problem. I just think scheme-wise that there are some ways to put more size on him or maybe a little bit holding up a little bit better in order to kind of negate some of Lawson's impact. Yeah, it's funny. I almost feel, I almost get the sense that we should have been defending the opposite teams because uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I almost feel a little bit higher on the Nuggets and uh, you you might be a little higher on the Blazers than I am. Um, I am. It's crazy. I got to do a better job defending <laughs> I kind of want to get your take on who you think who you think wins the series and in how many games. Of course, again, the the uh, the thirteen Nuggets have the the home court advantage. Yeah, I put Nuggets in seven. Um, the reason being, uh, like you said, the bench depth for Portland was pretty weak. Um, the Nuggets' uh, altitude and speed was their biggest factor. I'm imagining uh, just kind of a blowout game seven in a way because I do think you have enough that yeah, you're conceding a lot to Aldridge. I think Damian Lillard would be an issue. Um, 
defensively they're not going to be stout, but you got some weapons here. They wouldn't just roll over. This team was fifth offensive rating, eleventh defensive rating. They did enough that that it could work, and I think that they would ultimately um, that they would ultimately uh, pull it out. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you. I uh, I have the Nuggets in seven as well. Uh, I think it's one of those series where the <laughs> the uh, the the home team wins every game, sort of thing. Um, I think that altitude, that that uh, that transition game was a was a real factor. I forget exactly what the record was for that Nuggets team at home, but it was something ridiculous. Uh, um, yeah, I'm looking at how the numbers. I just pull it down as we start making our our decision, but. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Let me let me find that for you real quick. Yeah, um, but but yeah, that that depth I think is is going to be a little bit too much. And and yeah, I, I like the I might be um, maybe I overrate teams that don't have the the go to option that rely on the kind of the um, you know score by committee. Uh, you know the the two thousand two Sacramento Kings are one of my favorite teams of all time. I love that ball movement, that uh, you know that balanced offense. Um, but uh, you know there there has been evidence that in the playoffs sometimes that does not work. Um, That's true. Twenty fifteen Atlanta Hawks team. Exactly. Yes. Um, By the way, the Nuggets went out thirty eight and three at home. Thirty-eight and three, yeah. So it was it was a legitimate advantage, and again, that that whole roster was built around that. You know, you talk about a guy like even even Corey Brewer and Javale McGee; those guys are are just really good athletes running up and down. Obviously, Lawson and Iguodala and Farid, they oh just goodness. had a, a ton of guys that were just transition beasts. Yeah, you know what you you talking me up even pump me up even more because at first when you mentioned all this, I'm like, ah, ah, you know that that Blazers starting five was rough, but yeah, this team was built for where they were at. I mean, and and mind you, the stopping them was was the issue, like get pulling them out into a game where okay, they have to play kind of out of their element or doing what they did better than they did it. But you're right, like in their space, it was they were a few better. Yeah, um, I, I do think Aldridge would probably uh, score 30-plus in the series. But, uh, oh, yeah. I, he would go, remember that 2016 series uh, with Aldridge and the Spurs against the Thunder, I think? Yeah, first couple first of games, he just went nuts. Exactly. Yep. I think it'd be just like that. Yeah, um, but uh, okay, we're, we're technically you convinced me, um, so... Uh, <laughs> right. So uh, we, we, we're both in agreement there that uh, the... The, uh, the Denver Nuggets win that in seven. So we're now to the final matchup here, which is the uh, another matchup of two teams from the same organization. It's the 1991 run TMC Warriors versus the 2007 We Believe Warriors. And again, similar to you know when we were talking about the the two different Suns teams, these are are very similar teams in that they're both good offensive groups. They both were. Uh, lower seeds that had upsets in round one before falling in round two, and uh, they were both coached by Don Nelson himself. Isn't that crazy? The, the, the parallels on that are striking, um, especially Nelson going kind of a whirlwind, uh, you know, around um, around teams in between '91 and '07, but somehow finding himself with the same team in a, in a similar situation as underdogs who kind of revolutionized the play for what they were doing at the time. Yeah, and, and prior to, of course, the uh, the Steph-led Warriors teams that have won championships, probably two of the most beloved teams in, in franchise history. 
but uh, so so Corbin, you're going to be defending the We Believe 2007 Warriors, whereas I'm going to be defending the 1991 Run TMC Warriors. And that team went 44 and 38. They uh, they had 45 expected wins. Run TMC finished sixth in offense, 23rd in defense. Chris Mullen was the superstar on this roster. This was the year before he would join the Dream Team. But Mullen averaged 25.7 points on 61.8 true shooting. Truly a a, a terrific score for uh, for that Warriors team. Mitch Richmond as well, one of the most underrated shooting guards in the history of the game. He averaged just a tick under 24 points a game on 56.5 true shooting. And then you've got Tim Hardaway, and this is a Tim Hardaway... Uh, prior to suffering an ACL injury that kind of slowed him down a bit, um, you know the, the Tim Hardaway that was on the Miami Heat was was uh, not nearly as as quick and explosive as he was in the early '90s. Uh, but but that Hardaway averaged uh, nearly 23 points a game, almost 10 assists, a three to one assist to turnover ratio, and they also had Sarunas Marshallonis off the bench, a, a score that would get to the free throw line, kind of a slasher that I thought was was a good compliment to their to their three stars. Yeah, I mean that '91 Warriors team was a, a running gun to the finish. You had guys who were great playmakers, great scores, all up and down. And I mean, I, I can't, I can't Marshallonis. I always butcher the name, but. Absolutely. Now, uh, similar to the, we'll get to the uh, We Believe Warriors, but uh, the, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the run TMC team didn't uh, exactly have the greatest big men in the world. Uh, they had the likes of Tyrone Hill and, and Tom Tolbert, Alton Lister, Jim Peterson, who's the current uh, color guy for the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, but uh, they, they beat a, a really good San Antonio Spurs team with uh, the Admiral Dave Robinson in round one. And then lost to the uh, team that eventually were ended up the uh, Western Conference champion, Los Angeles Lakers, in five games. But Chris Mullen actually missed Game One of that series. It was a lot more competitive than I think a five-game series would would indicate. Um, but uh, yeah, moving on to the the We Believe Warriors, the the 07 Golden State team won 42 games, just 40 expected. They were 11th in offense and 19th in defense. But uh, the, the interesting thing about this team is they, they actually started the season 26-35, and 35, but made a midseason trade, acquiring the likes of Al Harrington, Stephen Jackson, Josh Powell, and Sarunas Yasakevichish for, uh, for the likes of Troy Murphy, Mike Dunleavy, Ike Diago, and Keith McLeod. And, and once they made that trade, uh, they, uh, they, they finished strong down the stretch, actually winning... Uh, 16 of their final 21 games before upsetting the 67-win Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, and this team, man, I mean, they were electric. Uh, Don Nelson, again, you know, nothing special where they were um, in terms of offense, defense, and that rating. They made that trade, and honestly, it was a lot of that trade lighting it up, adding Harrington, adding Stephen Jackson, changing up a little bit. Um, But also, Nelson just implementing small ball, going to that, as he did back in the early 90s, but doing it again some 16 years later, 
Nation, a lot of it was going small. And being first in pace, you saw a lot of parallels to the way the Warriors played that during that time, the way the Rockets or teams played now, where they're prioritizing shots from three, um, going to the rack, or getting to the free throw line. Um, but you had guys like Baron Davis, like um, Jason Richardson, even like uh, Monte Ellis, a young guy who was getting uh, some minutes back then, who definitely could stick the mid-range shot. Um, and again, we talked about Baron Davis with that 2003 Hornets team. He's getting even better now with the Warriors. 20 points, 4 rebounds, 8 assists, 53% true shooting. Harrington made a big impact as like a small ball, 4-5. Steven Jackson, again, we already mentioned Monte Ellis uh, being just a young one back then. Jason Richardson, Mikel Petras, Matt Barnes. That was the core of that team. And, you know, you had shooting from all of them. You had some offensive creation. You had lanky athletes who were solid enough on the defensive end to cause at least some problems. Not that they were, like, great defenders or anything, but, I mean, they off the number one see Like, they're kind of, their kind of play um, was surprisingly versatile and incredibly modern. Yeah, uh, the... Uh... The, the run TMC team, they, uh, they relied a lot on, on Tim Hardaway. He, of course, uh, you know, really made the, the crossover famous in the NBA, which led to the guys like Allen Iverson really utilizing it. But uh, Hardaway would, would do those uh, would do the between the legs cross sort of moves and, and absolutely blow by people. But his penetration really set things up for, for the shooting of, of Mullen and, uh, and Richmond. And uh, they would obviously play a fast-paced game. They spaced the floor incredibly well for a, a 1991 basketball team. You know, they're big men in the likes of, of Rod Higgins, Tom Tolbert. Uh, those guys uh, would, would stretch the floor and, and shoot the basketball as well. And, and Marshall Onis, again, his slashing style got them to the free-throw line. Marshall Onis that season averaged nine free-throw attempts per 36 minutes, so consistently attacking the rack and, and getting to the line. Uh, and and uh, again, to, to defend this 91 team and, and to defend their chances in this series, I think they've got the best player on the floor in Chris Mullen. I mean, I can't really argue that. Uh, the, the We Believe Warriors kind of did it by committee. Steven Jackson kind of being a guy alongside Baron Davis was kind of the, the main folks for that, but yeah. Tim Hardaway back then, you already mentioned the crossover, the shot-making ability, the ability to penetrate the lane, um, and the fact that the Warriors didn't exactly make defense a priority. They were <laughs> solid enough and sound enough there, but let's just say uh, that wasn't really where their bread was buttered. Yeah, Tim Hardaway, again, going back to the argument we made in earlier uh, matchups, best player of both teams, he kind of had an advantage there, and, and, and with Hardaway being a guy and, and Mullen in general, that uh, it's funny, because you were mentioning Mullen being the best player on both. I like Hardaway a lot more than I probably should in this matchup. Um, I think yeah. Mullen. I think Mullen is, is great, but I think you have guys who with some similar athleticism um, and some bigger, uh, some more strength in Harrington and Jackson that I would deploy. That wouldn't take Mullen out entirely. He, he's he's that he was that good player and he was really great back then. But I feel like Hardaway would be more of an issue, even with guys of like size or, or guys like Davis or or um, Montellus or such, just because, you know, he was just that dynamic. Whereas with Mullen, I feel like between Jackson, Petrus, Richardson, you know, uh, Harrington, you have guys of, 
of similar decent defensive ability, size, and strength to cause some problems, give some different looks, and make it make it more of a fight. I'm, I'm not going to argue that. I'm not going to lie about that. Yeah, the and I'm 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 sure you're you're speaking to those guys potentially being a Mullen foil because they they slowed down Nowitzki incredibly well in that series they won. I guess the the difference for me is Nowitzki was was much more of an on ball player where they're isolating him and just attacking one on one, where Mullen is is much more often attacking as a transition player, a catch and shoot sniper a uh, guy running off of screens and catching it, shot faking, and, and getting to his shots. Um, so I think in that respect, Mullen, against really any type of defense, especially when you've got the, the guy that you're concerned about and Tim Hardaway penetrating the defense and creating rotation, I think Mullen is going to get looks and uh, is going to, to be very effective. I mean, the, the guy just was one of the most pure shooters in the history of the sport. I mean, listen. You have a great, a great argument. I'm not, I'm not putting down. I think that, regardless of focusing on Mullen or on Hardaway, we, you know, I wish, I wish I was arguing for the Houston team. I could use the Houston. We have a problem line. But the point <laughs> being that we, we do have an issue um, because the versatility of the Warriors, like, it's like guys I would grade like C plus defenders. Like they're not, they weren't horrible. Um, you know, middle of the pack in defensive range, they weren't they weren't horrible in that way, but you're right. They'd have issues and, and, and Chris Mullen could play. He could definitely shoot. I see what you're saying about him making the most of his offensive ability off ball and using that to great effect and, and I guess that is that is that is a, a very good argument to be had. And I am worried again about the penetration that Hardaway creates, not only because yes, it may not be hard to, 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 to stop Hardaway, but because of the domino effect that, that penetration has on the rest of the defense and how they have to uh, kind of cover up for that. And we're not talking about the, the best defense in the world to begin with. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see that being some issues. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and honestly, as soon as you throw Monte Ellis on the floor, I'm going to attack him on the block with Mitch uh, Richmond, or I'm uh, going to attack him off the dribble with uh, Marshall Onis. So I like that matchup as well. The uh, You know, both teams kind of had some, some solid 3 and D guys. Of course, the 07 Warriors team had Matt Barnes. The 91 Warriors had Mario Eli, a young Mario Eli. But uh, this is is kind of uh, comparing poo-poo platters, but which team's bigs do you like more? I mean, I, I like the, the We Believe Warriors, just because most of it wasn't by going big. It was by sliding Harrington up a position, Steven Jackson up a position, um, having Petrus and Jackson up there, or not Petrus and Jackson, Petrus and Richardson up there, um, playing the three at times, you know, it was taking out most of the big men with the exception of Beadrin, who was still a very good rim runner and, 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 and uh, vertical uh, spacer in his own right in that regards, at least in filling the lanes and, and going downhill. Um, so I'm taking the Warriors, and it's weird, and uh, not the Warriors, I'm taking the We Believe Warriors, and it's weird in saying that, but it's because they didn't rely on those guys, they just kind of almost excise them completely out of their roster and focus on making the small guys play those big positions. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think um, they they have a little bit more depth just in terms of of wings that can that can play that small ball four position. Yeah, you mentioned it. They they just have so many in Richardson, Barnes, Harrington, Petrus. They they just have so many guys that they can they can throw out at that spot. The the thing for me about the the ninety one team and and there's a reason why they're they're called Run TMC and are still talked about to this day is. 
just that that three-headed monster at the top of that uh, roster is just tough to handle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we didn't even I didn't even mention Richmond as much only because I feel like between Mitch Richmond. Between Richmond and Marcelona, Marcelona's, I feel like we have enough guys to at least stay in front of them. But Richmond was a problem as well. Another guy who, in transition from three in the post, was just an issue. Um, and you're right; those three in general caused some some very big issues. Uh, again, for the our best bet is continuing the way we've been playing, spacing the floor out, prioritizing that shot selection. Even back then, I don't think the the '91. Uh, Warriors had some bombers, but I don't think they used them to the degree that the We Believe Warriors did. Getting to the line, using the strength of those swingmen, of Richardson, of um, Petrus, of uh, Jackson, and just kind of bombing away from there, making the most of Baron Davis, um, going with that small ball lineup that Don Nelson used um, a lot in the series against Dallas, which was Davis, Ellis, Richardson, Jackson, Harrington. Um, where there's tall, the tallest player was 6'9", and knowing that Ellis is going to be attacked, yes, but then backing up with some swingmen and Matt Barnes and Petrus and then using uh, Beadrin selectively in spots. So I think that having every player on the floor being able to run the floor, handle the ball, and knock down the three is something that even the 91 Warriors didn't have. And if you put your best lineup out there with every guy who could space the floor and shoot the three, you are giving up some size to my superior lineup on that end that can also do those same um abilities there so that would be my best um answer my best strategy for the we believe warriors to attempt to uh take out the 91 squad yeah it's it's interesting to think too because yeah you you mentioned the the differences in in just three point attempt rates among teams you know it still wasn't that high in 2007 but certainly more than it was in 91 but if uh, if the if the run TMC team all of a sudden is getting in a back and forth contest where the opponent is shooting a bunch of threes, I'm kind of excited about the the prospect of of Mullen Hardaway Mullen Hardaway and Richmond thinking oh we can we can fire away even more than we normally do. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's something to consider as well. I'm, 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 I guess I'm trying to argue quantity over quality in the sense that the We Believe Warriors had a nice stable of, of three-point shooters. There were some decent guys up and down that much, but like the 91 Warriors in general were guys who were great shooters, not only for their time, but just of all time. Like, they were just good shooters yeah. up and down the board. So, yeah, I, I guess my argument is that we can get enough from different guys um, that can try to make up for the quality of three really good shooters, um, three of the best for the position in general um, with the run TMC squad. So that that's kind of where I'm leaning and hoping that, you know, training some threes for twos and getting some more variety from those guys will kind of even out some of the margin there. Yeah, the um, to me, the you know, the starting lineup for that 91 team, especially in the playoffs, was, you know, Hardaway, Richmond, Mullen, Ellie, and uh, Lister. And, and that team has four three-point shooters. And then they also off the bench have the likes of Tom Tolbert, who can be a small ball five that shot the three. So even if you bring on a guy like, uh, you know, Marshall Onis, uh, you can still get that extra spacing by bringing off a non-shooting center and putting on a, a center that can that can space. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned. I, I do agree that the Warriors have a little bit more depth of shooting, but... Um, you know that '91 Warriors team has five or six guys that can that can fire away from three, and they're probably only going to play as as Don Nelson typically did, only about seven or eight guys. 
Yeah, I, I guess that's true. When you take their seven and, and the We Believe seven, I I think it gets a, the margin. The margin kind of goes a little bit more in the run TMC direction. So yeah, what do you think about the? Um, was was there anything more to discuss in terms of just the era? Now the the ninety one run TMC Warriors get home court in this series, um, and. Uh, there's, there's also the idea of hand-checking was gone, so in the games in uh, uh, the We Believe Warriors arena, uh, the the likes of Tim Hardaway gets to uh, drive into the paint without any hand-checks. Um, and then, <laughs> and then also, you know, the, the 07 Warriors did go to, to, to some zone um, a, a bit, and, and they can't do that as uh, they can't do that in 91 in, uh, in the run TMC home games. I'd actually taken both of those changes into account just watching some of that. I just didn't want to bring it up because obviously it doesn't support my team. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, looking at that taken all into account, I ultimately came up with the run TMC team in six, the same as how the 07 team went down to the Utah Jazz. I do think there's enough, uh, I guess, variation in three-point shots going down uh, for the 07 team to get one. I also think that one of... Jason Richards and Steven Jackson or Baron Davis are the monster game that will kind of win one mostly on their efforts alone. However, it's just a superior team, and those rule changes make a lot, especially since Baron Davis, especially at you know his physical ability then, great shooter, um, still used the size and strength, but was kind of bigger then, and, and Tim Hardaway would definitely just eat a lot of those guys alive. Um, a lot of the defenders that we have on the 07 team are defenders in name only, um, <laughs> and I just think that Ultimately, they'd be too much. I definitely feel that the 07 team would get a couple of games, but I ultimately see them going down in six, largely due to just losing to a superior team, losing a home court advantage, and having the rules go against you when you need them to trend the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, the uh, an underrated aspect of that We Believe team upsetting the Mavericks was, you know, Baron Davis, who that season shot just a tick over 30% from three, he just went nuts from downtown in that series. I think he shot over 50% from three in that series against Dallas. And yeah, when he's knocking down threes at that rate, then you factor in all of the other good shooters that that team had. It becomes overwhelming, and, and that's kind of what it felt like for that Mavs defense. They just didn't know what to do to, to stop that team. Um, but uh, I, I think I just rely a little bit more, or I'm, I'm confident more in the consistency of shooting from from that uh, 91 team. Uh, so so yeah, I'm I'm in agreement with you there. Uh, I'm actually going to go 91 Warriors in five, uh, winning it on their home floor. But uh, I do think there's a game there where you know Baron Davis just uh, gets hot and 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 gets that we believe team a a win. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was. Uh, that was that was really good. So so we agreed on on four of the five matchups. The only one that is going to a uh, Twitter decision was the uh, the matchup between the 2010 Suns and the '95 Suns. But uh, overall, we were we were pretty much in agreement. Yeah, I was surprised a little bit as we broke it down. Some of them, I thought, okay, like it trends one way. Maybe I can make an argument the other way. I'm glad that Suns matchup went down the way it did because I was pretty solid that it would. I'm like, okay, I feel like Garrett's going to say certain things that I know are weaknesses that I can't bring up. I'm going to have enough to stand by my team, at least to make enough of an argument. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, listen, I know we're going to have future disagreements that go further down this bracket. Um, time and a place for that, but I, I, I like how this was settled for the most part. You know, we both had a, a nice back and forth, but 
belonged to the league. You know, there was there was a team that that kind of looked better. I wish I made a better argument for the ninety nine Knicks. I will say that before we end. <laughs> Well, yeah, and uh, hopefully you uh, you enjoyed this process enough to do about another thirty episodes of these, because that's how much content we probably have. Although we we could probably only fit in one more play in uh, play in episode prior to the restart, uh, so there will be a hiatus before we break down the the final sixty four. But we have uh, um, we have set up a project that gives us plenty to discuss. Oh yeah. Oh no, I am totally here for it, Gary. Like this is this is the stuff. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find... Me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host, Corbin Ford, on Twitter at Corbin NBA, that's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he uh, he does a d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns. So you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor. For Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day.